Looks like we have 13 people waiting. Cool. All right, going live. Hi. I think that we should be good now. So, um, and all these kind of these audio problems, but I, I think we got it figured out. I had to break into the apartment that I'm in currently. I had to climb in through the window after failing to card the door for all the audio settings. But I think I think we're good now. So uh, cool. let's let's turn the screen on then, so people can see us here. And uh, there we go, folks. Is this working? Can you all see us? So I wanted to bring Chris Catrone back on because last conversation I thought was a really great conversation. Um, I think a lot of people appreciated it and there was a lot, a lot that we didn't get a chance to talk about. And there was a lot of follow-up questions that I had is Catrone specific Adorno and Lenin and then I was saying that I have a couple of uh, notes for the good of the order um, and I think that now that we're back uh, the thing that I want to say everybody as I fill up my coffee here is uh, there's a couple of people who raised in the comment sections, I think, some sort of, uh, I, I would say dismissive or sort of eye-rolling kinds of remarks, uh, which is fine. I don't mind having some criticism or whatever. Um, but there was, there was one that was a little critical that I thought, actually, I will take seriously um, because uh, the person was kind of bringing up the fact that for the Theory Plague channel, this is a little off-brand because for the last couple of years, I've been doing like critique of ideology and uh, challenging fundamental presuppositions and you know suspending master signifiers and you know that the left is like a master signifier and if you know uh, uh, Marxism or Leninism is an ideology um, then what am I doing you know taking this so seriously why are we doing this this way and you know I, I think that I'm not shocked that some people might be a little surprised at this because um, I, 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 I assume an audience of skeptical workers. But here's the thing though, and I think that for, if you're a skeptical worker who is a, an ADHD learner who's, who plays games after a long day at work, or if you are a multitasking worker who's like, like you know, you're just stocking shelves or driving trucks or whatever, um, there's only so far that skepticism and thinking on your own or with other people who are also constantly skeptical is able to get you without also being engaged in dialogue over time with people who've been at it for a lot longer than you have but who have done so in a principled way and that uh, you know that a, a certain kind of like maintained skepticism or what have you obviously can can be a kind of principle uh, and it is obviously for a philosopher and it's a kind of practice but at the same time though when it comes to organizing and to teaching, uh, having a set of principles that goes beyond um, the suspension of belief, um, I think is important. And that this is, for instance, oh my gosh, what just happened to the video? Are we still streaming? 
Focus. I think we are. Oh, well, on my side, it just completely turned off there for a second, so. Can I say something about the Master Signifier? Yeah, I would love that. All right, so for me, you know, Lenin or Adorno or Marx are not, like, Master Signifiers. Um, they are historical figures yes. that I think are, who I think are important. Um, and so I'm interested in understanding the way they thought in their historical moment and the reasons for that. Um, you know, what their perspective was and how it relates to reality now, meaning, you know, do we still live in Marx's time? Do we still live in Lenin's time? Do we still live in Adorno's time? Yes and no, right? So it's not about um, anything that they said or wrote or did that is simply authoritative, you know, because they might have been right or wrong, right? In you know, in what they thought, what they what they wrote, what they said, what they did um, politically, theoretically. Um, but I'm still interested, even if they were wrong, that's still a kind of interesting question or problem, you know, the, the reasons for that. Um, so, you know, I just think that this history has been falsified for political reasons. Um, and so it's not a matter of, you know, being for or against or kind of either or or accepting or rejecting the authority of these figures. Yeah. Um, it's about us having something to learn from them. Right. Well, and so and I think that there is a way definitely that, say, your favorite political figure in history can become a master signifier that kind of quilts the meanings of all the other words that you're using. But also the word the left, I think, can mm -hmm. become, become itself a master signifier. And so I think that that is the one that the person in question was bringing up in particular, because here you have Benedict Cryptofash saying, you know, well, Marx was actually an anti-leftist for his time. And so that's what we ought to do if we want to be really Marxist today is be anti-left because the left is alive. Actually, the left just is the Democrats and it's, you know, protests and academic wings who are usually dissenting from the Democratic Party, but at the same time participating in it. And then, the problem with the anti-leftism, yeah. if I can just say, is that uh, it's not about being for or against. It's not about being pro or contra, you know, anti. It's about a critique. So Marx was a critic of the left of his time, the socialist and communist movement of his time, the workers' movement of his time. He was a critic. He had a critique. And meaning that, I think the way that I put it in some of my writing is a critical participant in the socialist and communist movement and in the proletarian socialist movement. Um, a critical so that's different. Yes. You know, that's different from being like for or against it. Um, to endorse it, but be critical of it. You're right. right? And I, and I, well, and I, I also think that there's a, you know, to this master signifier point, like uh, if, if your entire identity or all of your practice or all of your theorizing is anti some signifier, it's still your master signifier. So, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, in other words, you can denounce something or you can celebrate it and either way you're kind of affirming it. Yeah. You yeah. don't really have an adequately critical attitude towards it. 
much less a positive, um, much much less a positive project of your own, right? And so I guess mm -hmm. the, to, to finish out the sort of my note, I guess is just to say that um, I I think that you know if 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 you have the privilege of going to university and come, you know obviously not having to take on a shit ton of debt and all of this, and one of the advantages I think that is often kind of lost on people who don't get to go is that you get to be surrounded by a lot of different people who believe a lot of different things who spent their entire lives working through different fields and you know it you know and, and being swept up along the way and perhaps maybe even being like a, you know really getting into it with with this class or that class along the way uh it, it helps develop you and and gives you mm -hmm. kind of a much deeper understanding than sort of these stereotypical caricatures given to us by op opponents of things and so it's hopefully like Hopefully. Hopefully. Not, mo most academics don't avail themselves of that, though. Right. Well, <laughs> most of the time, you're not going to get... Uh, you, I don't, it's pretty hard to get a, a, a historical account of anything from somebody who doesn't believe some things. And so, right. you know, like, I, I have my Gerald Smith sessions up on this channel in this same playlist that our conversations are in. And, you know, he gives five separate lectures in that series on various things like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, black nationalism and he's 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 uh he's agreeing that these are important issues he's also talking you know he's giving a principled critique but he's not able to give a principled critique that has been borne out from his life practice without like believing in some things and having some, right. having his own master signifier right. which is basically trotskyism so I mean, right. look, if people have to take a standpoint at some point, and you've taken a stand, and I want to know a little bit about what that stand is, because it's, you know, it's, you believe that Lenin and Adorno are, like, absolutely essential for understanding the history of social change movements in the world today. And so maybe, I guess, what I want to set up is for people who don't really know these two names outside of some historical anecdotes they might have overheard in high school, what, who are they, and why do people typically not um, subscribe to or take them both seriously at the same time. All right. So, uh, to start with Adorno, maybe we could work our way backwards. So Adorno was a member of the Frankfurt school, the Institute for social research in Frankfurt. Um, so he's a non-party affiliated Marxist intellectual, um, part of that Institute's mandate and mission was to be nonpartisan, and the reason for that was the split in the Marxist movement during and after World War One in the Revolution. So the SPD, um, the KPD, the Communist Party. These are all um, the German German parties, right? German socialists, German communists, yeah, and the the larger split between the Second Socialist International and the Third Communist International. Then there were also unaffiliated Marxists, or you know, members of smaller ten tendencies like the left communists or council communists. Um, so they wanted to be someplace where collaboration across those political divisions could take place. Um, now, they did have participants in the Institute who were party members of one kind or another. Adorno, though, never was, um, and neither was Horkheimer, who's the head honcho, the impresario. But they are, nonetheless, even though they're kind of nonpartisan, they are sympathetic with the Russian Revolution and the, the German 
Spartacus Fund and Communist Party, Rosa Luxemburg's organization. They're sympathetic to, to what Lenin and the Bolsheviks and Luxembourg and the Spartacus Fund and, you know, the communist movement of the Third International, what they represented. Um, and so at the same time, that doesn't mean subscribing to everything that the communist movement was doing or producing theoretically, especially in the time that they're really operating. So Horkheimer takes over the Institute in 1930, and Adorno becomes affiliated with it after that. So Mar uh, Horkheimer, Marcuse, uh, Walter Benjamin, they're a bit older than Adorno. They're about 10 years older, roughly. Um, Marcuse was? Yeah, Marcuse is a bit older than Adorno, yeah. Oh, wow. He lived... He lived to be older than Adorno, but he was also started out older than Adorno. Adorno was born in 1903. I think that everybody else is from the 1890s. And arguably, uh, he got to live longer because he was very careful to not piss off the student movement. Um, right, right. <laughs> or he, he enjoyed life more or something. Uh, I don't know. But in any case, um, you know, they... They are, in fact, the Frankfurt School Leninist. Pretty oh. much all of them, right? So Benjamin, Horkheimer, Marcuse, Adorno. Um, you know, I've detailed this in my uh, my Adorno's Marxism uh, PhD dissertation at the University of Chicago, um, as well as in various articles that I've written and published. But, uh, you know, I really went in and found all the documentation evidence of their thoughts and you know they're they're uniformly sympathetic to lenin even though they are very critical of the direction that the soviet union took after lenin um so that was a source of conflict for them with the two figures who were kind of foundational for the institute for social research in frankfurt those are Georg lukacs and karl korsch so their works from the early 1920s were extremely influential and foundational for people like Horkheimer, Benjamin, Adorno, Marcuse. Right. But, but Lukács became more of an uncritical adherent of Soviet communism, and Korsh became a really harsh critic of Soviet communism after the mid-1920s. And so right. they both... Turned. Like they they turn opposites though, or yes, both in the same direction. Turned, no, opposite directions. Opposites. So okay. Korsh went in the direction of uh, council communism, and ultimately symp sympathy to anarchism, and uh, Lukacs stuck with the Third International, the Communist International, through the Stalinist turn. Right. So Even though he was critical, but he he towed the line. Right. Arendt Arendt calls Lukacs uh, Stalin's house intellectual right like, well that's not fair yeah that's not fair but that's hannah Arendt. she's catty i mean that's not entirely fair but it, it is the case that um they turned against their own early work so both lukacs and Korsh renounced their own earlier work whereas the frankfurt school still upheld their earlier work and followed it so so Korsh and lukacs being foundational and inspiring like all the rest of them but then kind of going in these two opposite directions, but the rest of everyone kind of stayed 
at least more or less, you know, loyal to or sympathetic to at least the initial mm -hmm. stages yep. of the revolution. And, you know, the, the self-understanding, the way that I'd put it. So what I was saying earlier about taking these figures seriously, you know, Marx and Engels and Lenin and Adorno and also, you know, other Marxists, obviously, Rosa Luxemburg, Kautsky, Babel, you know, uh, the earlier figures like uh, Wilhelm Liebknecht and even Edward Bernstein, who became a revisionist, you know, taking them seriously in their self-understanding. Like, what is it that they thought they were doing? And also, how did they explain their own way of thinking to themselves? Because these are very self-reflexive, self-conscious people who can explain why they think as they do. Right. And and have a kind of historical account of their own subjectivity, of their own thought, of their own political practice. Right. They don't take it for granted at all. Um you know, and that's really the hallmark of Marxism. So, you know, being a Marxist today means adopting a similar viewpoint, uh, kind of a, we could say a self-critique of ideology, mm -hmm. right? So the idea is that Marxism is not separate from other ideological phenomena of capitalism. Right. And, and the socialist and communist movement is itself bourgeois ideology. It is bourgeois ideology. The workers' movement is bourgeois ideology, in theory and in practice. Um, and so Marxism just seeks to be the most critically self-aware, self-conscious faculty of that movement. So but it doesn't like... exempt itself. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I feel like that's a hot take, and it's and it's one that I uh, you, you got to talk about the bourgeois. Uh, revolution and 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 what that is, I guess, for people, because I think for for a lot of people just getting into leftist things or whatever, yeah, or maybe like yeah. studying this stuff. Bourgeois is just a slur that means part of the ruling <laughs> class, right? It's just the bourgeois means part of the ruling class. It's a slur. It means bougie, right? Yeah, oh, it's bougie. It means place. bougie, right? Um, it means big pimping, <laughs> you know, um, spending cheese, right? But no, it does not mean that, right? So bourgeois means, you know, Renaissance, humanistic, enlightenment. You know, it means the third estate. It means the new urban social reality. And, and, so, uh, and, and the so, workers and the capitalists are both bourgeois. Right. Because they're not country. The opposite of bourgeois is country. There are the country folk. Those are the traditionalists. Those are the peasants. The country priests, the lords on the manor, those are all country folk. The bourgeois and the bourgeoisie are the people who live in the town, and that's the workers and the capitalists. And and up until the the bourgeois revolutions, the they really the they you know they 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 understood themselves as the productive people, who yep. who had no rights. So they they were the ones who produced society, but they also had no rights. And so the bourgeois revolutions, like including people like Locke, you know, John yeah. Locke, right? Yep. Uh, but it also includes people like Rousseau. So it kind of has absolutely right. So, on, the, so champions of private property, but also people who want to abolish private property, all included as part of this bourgeois movement. Yeah. So my my you know anecdote on that front is from the American Revolution. Okay, so John Locke. Uh, you know, 
as you say, he established that the right to property was based on labor rather than possession, mm-hmm. rather than conquest. So the idea is rather than might makes right, um, it's the right to property is earned through laboring activity. Everything that you've worked on becomes your property because you've transformed it and you've extended yourself into it. It becomes part of you. It belongs to you. Um, now, so we have from the English Revolution, we have life, liberty, and property. Those are the Lockean inalienable rights. So when Thomas Jefferson sat down to write the Declaration of Independence when he was uh, commissioned to, to write it up, and he did so in consultation with Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, a little bit older, participant of the, you know, philosoph enlightenment uh, culture in Europe. Um, they revised Locke. So they replaced life, liberty, and property with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes. And the reason that they replaced property with the pursuit of happiness is because they thought, well, property is a means to happiness, but it's not an end in itself of happiness. And we might need property rights now, but in the future, maybe we won't. Right. So they thought you can't call property rights an inalienable right because that could change. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. The way life and liberty are ends in themselves. Right. They they just are values in and of themselves. Property is not. They thought. Um, And and so, yeah. And do we. So, you know, I've read. Or, or at least, I mean, I skimmed Arendt's uh, On Revolution, and yep. she spends that chapter on public happiness where she's critiquing the way American culture had inherited that idea because to the founders it was transparent and obvious that happiness, as they had talked about it all the time, was public happiness, meaning the ability to, not, after you've been studying philosophy you know, for years on end, to be able to engage in public <laughs> public discourse, have debates openly and, and critique things, right? So, right. And which marks also like the idea of being able to critique in the pub at the end of the day. Absolutely. Right? I so. mean, so it's Locke as transformed by Rousseau. So where did Jefferson and oh. Benjamin Franklin get the idea that property is a means to an end and not an end in itself? It's from Rousseau's critique of Locke. Oh, wow. It comes straight from there. And this is the affinity of the American and French revolutions, Rousseau. Yeah. And so, you know, so what I'd say about this is, you know, to kind of come back to it, the bourgeois revolution. Right. um, What, of course, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and others in the American Revolution took for granted is what we were talking about earlier, which is the principle of labor, meaning labor as a social principle, may or may not have to be objectified in the form of property rights. Right? So that's where they're open-ended. Now, I'd say about a rent, it's not just happiness, it's the pursuit of happiness, which is also open-ended, the way life and liberty are open-ended, ends in themselves. So the pursuit of happiness, not any definition of happiness, not any particular... Now, of course, that's not individual happiness. That is collective happiness as well as individual happiness. Right. And therefore, it's public as well as private, of course. Um, and, you know, they are Enlightenment figures. They, they are part of the Republic of Letters, definitely. And they def, you know, certainly adhere to the idea of uh, a humanistic public sphere 
And, you know, yes, the culture of debate. Um, so, you know, that's that's the bourgeois revolution. The interesting thing is that from a Marxist perspective, the bourgeois revolution had been going on for a while before 1776 and 1789. It had been going on really since the Renaissance, since the free city states of the Renaissance, since they started thinking about what kind of polity they constituted. And that's why Machiavelli is important and other thinkers. Vico. Um, you know, there's a new conception of society, a new conception of history involved. Um, and But it's interesting that bourgeois society, from Marx's perspective, because he talks about this, only became fully conscious of itself at the end of the bourgeois revolution. So 1776, 1789 come at the end. They're not the beginning of bourgeois society. They're the end of a process. Right, so bourgeois social relations had emerged over hundreds of years since the Renaissance. And it's only at the end of that process that bourgeois society becomes fully conscious of itself. And that's why you get the Enlightenment and you get especially Rousseau as a kind of radical Enlightenment. And you get people like Adam Smith and Kant and Hegel who really come into a full consciousness of bourgeois freedom and the bourgeois freedom of the social relations of labor as a socially transformative phenomenon and moment of history. Now, what's ironic about that is that just when bourgeois society becomes conscious of itself, it's going to go into crisis with the Industrial Revolution, okay. which is already beginning in the mid-1700s in England and is certainly underway um, in Europe by the time of the French Revolution and after the French Revolution. Um, so, you know, again, very quickly, this bourgeois revolutionary perspective encounters a new problem the Industrial Revolution, right. which really troubles the conception of society based on cooperative labor. And really undermines the, 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 the seeming unity of productive people, right? Because That's right. Because nowadays Split it's obviously like... the third like, estate. Yeah, bec yeah, it's not a third estate. Suddenly you see there's a sharp division between people within this estate. And so really quick, just to, on the terminology, the first estate was the priesthood and the second estate was the what? Aristocracy. The, the aristocracy? The warrior caste. The mm -hmm. war yeah, they're the warrior caste. And right. so this... Normally when people think of aristocrats, they're not usually thinking of like warriors, right? Like, no, but... but they are. They're chivalry, right? So they are the people who have honor. You know, um, they are the lords, the lords of the estate. Um, you know, I always like to tell my students, watch the Seven Samurai. You know, the Kurosawa. Yeah, um, yeah I saw you a know. Time ago. So is that like, what is the, is the point that they, you know, my dad's dad's dad got this land through conquest. And so I, you know, you know, you, yep. and then the honor society is kind of built around like, therefore I'm entitled to it and everything like that. Well, you're entitled to it, but you're also responsible for it. In other words, with the conquest comes a responsibility. So why I, you know, point to the seven samurai is that, um, you know, it's all about the lords, the samurai's obligation towards the peasants, right? So the peasants can't defend themselves. The lords have to defend them. Okay. Right. So in other words, you know, if they, if they submit to the Lord, then the Lord is also taking responsibility to defend them. 
Right. So, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's rights and obligations, privileges and obligations, we could say, rights and responsibilities. You know, the feudal system is based on that. It's a caste distinction, though. Peasants can't become lords, and lords don't become peasants. Right. Right. But they do have obligations to each other in a way that the capitalists and the workers don't. Right. Right? Right. But that's freedom. Right. That's considered right? bourgeois freedom, yeah. That's bourgeois freedom. In other words, you know, do we want noblesse oblige? Do we want our betters to have, like, a sense of obligation towards us poor plebeians? Right. You know? No. No. <laughs> Nor do we owe them anything either. Right. Right. Yeah, that, and that's you know, and in some sense, I think that's like the react uh, a reactionary refrain um, about the uh, you know a market society is that really nobody owes anybody anything, um, and if they do, then they can be squared with one another if they just pay up and yeah. it's over, and then it's over. The relationship. They can negotiate. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. So, um, but anyway, you know. So what's interesting is that. The socialist movement comes directly out of the bourgeois revolutionary movement. So both out of the American Revolution and out of the French Revolution, more famously, if you will, from the French Revolution, but also the American Revolution. So I always like to point out that at the end of his life, Thomas Jefferson was reading up on, interested in, in correspondence with and supportive of the utopian socialists. Being Rousseau? Or uh, some people that follow from, I'm, I'm assuming. Well, um, Rousseau is not a socialist. It doesn't make any sense to talk about Rousseau as a socialist. But there is a radical tradition that comes out of both the American and French revolutions. The left wing, if you will, of the American and French revolutions. That's where socialism comes from. And obviously it starts out with a kind of radical egalitarianism and a right, you know, radical kind of social solidarity perspective. And that gets modified insofar as people experience uh, the proletarianization of the working class and the Industrial Revolution. And so the utopian socialists are more like beneficent kind of elites who want to like make society better. Um, the initiative turns by the 1830s in the direction of the proletarianized working class asserting itself. Um, and that's that's the scene that Marx arrives on. So Marx arrives on the scene when there already is a proletarian socialist movement as opposed to a bourgeois socialist movement or a kind of utopian socialist movement, even an aristocratic socialist movement. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, there is not a break exactly because the the proletarian socialists, the workers, the industrial working class, or the working class under conditions of the Industrial Revolution, because it's not just like industrial factory workers, that they are taking up the, the promise and the demands of the bourgeois revolution. So they're still upholding life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, liberty, equality, fraternity, right? They're saying the revolution has been betrayed. Right. Well, and if my position even... Uh one that argues that, you know, we don't just need money, we don't just need resources, we don't just need opportunities, we also need the time, energy to be able to actually get and do any of those, you know, do anything with that, right? And without 
the time and energy to be able to build relationships and develop our skills or find our talents or you know whatever outside of the market it's it's for naught and so but that is a bourgeois sentiment in the sense that it, yes. stem, it stems from that enlightenment ideal of uh from the kantian sense of people being able to free themselves from their own immaturity well how do they do that obviously it's through education it's through discourse it's through philosophy it's through social arts. intercourse social relations right? right um through production and commerce um so you know i always also like to point out that we have a we have a kind of a bourgeois bias i would say which is that we assume that we work more productively and efficiently than people did in the past which means that when we think of the past when we think of peasants but also when we think of bourgeois society, when we think of like pre-industrial workers, we think of them working very long and very hard under conditions of poverty. No. So the bourgeoisie in, in the Renaissance, you know, in the free city states um, and up to the Industrial Revolution, they're an artisanal working class. They are not the poorest people in society, which would have remained the peasants. Right. Um, and they're not working, you know, as in the Industrial Revolution, like 12 hour days, six or seven days a week. They're not like it's not like that. Um, and so these are not like miserable, ground down, poor, exploited, oppressed people, the working class. They, that happens with the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution impoverishes the working class, the bourgeois working class um, and proletarianizes them. And right. that was not the case before that, right? So there were paupers, there were beggars, there were people who had sort of dropped out of society, and then there were poor peasants, you know, hard scrabble existence on the land. But the working class was not, they were not the most exploited or the poorest or the most ground down people, no. Yeah, but it doesn't get to be like Charles Dickens until you've got the factories. Right. Yes. So the Industrial Revolution produces a new kind of poverty that completely contradicts the principles and promise of bourgeois society. Right. Um, and so to, to say that – so to bring it all back around because this is I think you've – this is the, maybe the last 15 minutes or 10 minutes has been kind of just expanding on – you know, okay, so the bourgeoisie, the bourgeois revolution, you know, this is not a inherently all retrograde or terrible or bad kind of idea or set of ideals even. Um, and, no. But you were, you were saying, though, what this all stemmed from. Needs to be. Yes, seeks needs to be. To be. See yeah. Like, you know, in other words, whether always successfully or not, tries to be. So what I'd say about this, one of the reasons why, you know, we kind of got off um, our track a bit, because I was starting off ex explaining who Adorno and Lenin are. Right. Um, so the Frankfurt School has a kind of controversial way of posing the contradiction of capitalism. So Marx and Marxists define the contradiction of capitalism as the contradiction of bourgeois social relations and industrial forces of production. What most people don't realize is that it, that entails a contradiction of social being and consciousness. So it's not like a positive sociology of social being determines consciousness. It is not. If social being determines consciousness in capitalism, what Marx meant by that was capitalism is a self-contradictory social being that gives rise to a self-contradictory consciousness of itself in his time. 
right? But it's not that social being determines con consciousness, quite, quite the opposite. It's rather that bourgeois social relations, which give us the consciousness that we have in theory and practice, are contradicted by industrial production, which is like a kind of social being that is contradicting our consciousness in the society. So we live in an industrial society, but we live according to principles and morals that are from the 1700s. So, you know, in the United States, right, we live in an advanced capitalist country according to the principles of 1776. And there's a contradiction there. There's a fundamental contradiction there. Uh, progressive capitalist politicians, progressive liberal capitalist politicians, the Democrats, um, acknowledged this 100 years ago. They said, you know, Woodrow Wilson, before he was president, said the industrial society makes the Constitution obsolete. So what? we have to like, what? yeah, yeah, <laughs> he, he said we basically we have to pretend we're doing things according to the Constitution, but we're really not. And he said that's the, the Democratic Party. The Industrial Revolution made that clear for him. That's right. And not just him, Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, you know, pretty much the whole progressive era, the whole progressive movement is very clear that there is a problem trying to govern a society based on industrial production according to the principles of the American Revolution. Right. Yeah. So, again, they come to it rather late because Marx figured this out in the 1840s. Right. Um, because he looked at the contradiction between the 1848 revolution in France and the 1789 revolution. Right. Right. So, so. what I was going to say is that the the Frankfurt School is controversial and people think that they're not Marxists because they said, well, the contradiction of this society is between its ideals and its reality. Right. Right. And people thought, oh, well, that's like idealism. No, it's because actually those ideals are grounded. They, they do originate in and are generated by our social relations, our social reality. But our social reality is self-contradictory. And one way that that's expressed is between the contradiction between the ideals and the reality. Right. Right. And so that, that is a way of posing it. It means, though, that you don't just take like industrial production and say, it debunks bourgeois ideals. You can also do the opposite. You can say, actually, the bourgeois ideals give you a critical perspective on the social reality, right? right. So to say this society is not living up to its own ideals, that's a legitimate standpoint of critique. So you can critique present day society on the basis of the principles of 1776 or 1789, right? right. You can just say, Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, you know what? Capitalism is violating that. Right. Liberty, Which... equality, fraternity, capitalism's violating that. And that's where the socialist movement comes from. And that's not something that is completely alien to Marx either. No, not at all. I mean, in other words, Marx obviously has a very complex understanding, a dialectical understanding, to use a word, of that contradiction. Um, and so... Again, we could say, well, a kind of vulgar socialism, a vulgar Marxism, a vulgar communism. You know, I mentioned Thomas Jefferson, the Communist Party, their school, they had a school, was called the Thomas Jefferson School. Why did they, why did they call it the Thomas Jefferson School? Because they were saying that they stood for Jefferson as against the Democrats and the Republicans. 
Eugene Debs said, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, he'd be a member of the Socialist Party. He wouldn't be a Democrat or a Republican. Okay, so obviously that's a little far-fetched to put it just like that, but what's meant by that, the spirit of that? Right. And to say, you know, we are struggling for the mantle of the American Revolution against the capitalists who have betrayed it. That's like a powerful thing in the history of socialism. That, you know, there are problems there. Like one would have to, again, at a more sophisticated theoretical level, examine that and look at it dialectically. But it's not the worst place to start out politically. Because after all, you're trying to win the working class over to a socialism against the capitalist parties, right? And the capitalist parties are going to give lip service to the revolutionary ideals of the bourgeoisie. Right. It's pretty easy for them to conflate their means of production with what, you know, private property, for instance, which... Yeah, so, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, what's terrible is that much later, the Supreme Court reinterpreted pursuit of happiness to mean property rights. So it's like, don't, like, the whole point of Jefferson not writing life, liberty, and property. Later on, they were like, oh, well, he just meant property. And they did that precisely to stave off the problem of the industrial capitalist society they, they recognized oh you know so they had to kind of reify property rights in the era of industrialization when they made that decision it was after the u.s was becoming industrialized and they reinterpreted it as this is why we have to defend property rights whereas it's precisely industrialization that supersedes capacity for property rights to really adjudicate social justice right and so this is the contradiction that gets swept under the rug or the rug by appeals to these ideals when the you know capitalist parties are giving it lip service you know absolutely and then the left unfortunately the left is is awful well the left is dead as you know <laughs> but the left is awful because they think that the point is to be anti-bourgeois Right. I was wondering if you were going there because, I mean, that, that yeah. to me was sort of the subscript of everything we're saying so far, which is like it's pretty easy, I imagine, if you read the manifesto in high school and then you're like, I'm going to get a lot more engaged. And so you just start reading Lenin and maybe to pick your pick your person who comes after Lenin. And then you're just reading all of that to be like, yeah, bourgeois is just a slur for all the things I don't like. And also and I think it would be pretty easy to 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 through that um think that yeah we can throw out um the, mm -hmm. you know the idea of uh societies in which the the purpose really is uh figuring things out and talking without immediate application right uh and, and you know a space in which people are able to dissent from whoever it is that is in power or is trying to take power yeah um, critical relationship between theory and practice you know Kant's distinction between public and private reason, you know. Now, okay, so that's pretty much Frankfurt School, if you will. That's Adorno. Uh, there's obviously a lot more to say about Adorno, but just as a basic starting point, the idea that ideology critique is a legitimate way of getting at the problem of capitalism, 
So political economy being one area of ideological expression, but it can be expressed in other ways. And it can also come out in things like very obscurely, I guess, in, in like art and psychology and philosophy. Um, but actually, you know, in a discernible way, you can see art and psychology and philosophy as domains where the contradiction of capitalism shows up. Right. So, you know, again, this is why the Frankfurt School, you know, they're they're known as like cultural Marxists, cultural critics. You know, the alt right likes to see them as like this conspiracy to undermine things via culture. It's you know kind of absurd. Um, but again, it's pretty funny because actually Jordan Peterson, I think, uh, yeah. could <laughs> could probably take a lot of uh, uh, inspiration and even gain some authority just by drawing off of Adorno. After I was reading the the mm. the Der Stiegler uh, uh, oh interview uh, yeah. interview and the dialogue between uh, or the inter the letter exchange between Marcuse, Marcuse and Adorno and Adorno was. I mean, he was being harassed serially for for years uh, by the mm -hmm. by, by these LARPing, you know, uh, attention stunt seeking. Uh, I, I personally, I take Adorno's side. Um, you know, students who yeah. were using the fact that he was lecturing to a thousand people as a oh well, that's a good opportunity for us to get some attention, and so they would shut him down by screaming yep. by screaming and yelling. Which I mean, yep. Peter Peter, no one would know who Peterson was if it wasn't for the fact that. Students are still they're still acting in this mode where they show up and they scream and they yell and nobody in the world who sees screaming and yelling people silencing another person. Okay, the overwhelming majority of people in civil society who see that go, well, you're the bad ones, right? And well, and so, there's that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's no, it's the it's the you know the protest demonstration ethos on the left, you know, speaking truth to power, whatever. And then they attack whoever they can. And, you know, of course, it's easy to attack, you know, a leftist professor like Adorno, yeah. you know, who's a marginal figure, totally marginal. He's subject to anti-Semitic contempt from his academic colleagues. Like his academic colleagues never take him seriously because they see him as having a job only because the U.S. forced the German university to hire Jews. And so they literally, the colleagues of Horkheimer and Adorno refer to them as the Jew professors. Oh, yeah. Wow. Nazism yeah. was not defeated. It was not defeated. So, you know, no, poor no, Adorno. No, no, no. People try to act like, uh, like the anti-Semitism was a Nazi invention, as though it wasn't like a super strong and pervasive thing in like every country in Europe at the time, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that's Adorno. So I feel like the controversial one, and maybe we can bring Adorno back in later. But the controversial one is Lenin. Well, well, and that's the thing you is know? that it's like, I, it, it seems to me like Lenin stands against a lot of what you've laid out here, and kind of just takes for granted. Like, okay, so he wants to bootstrap a proletarian revolution and, and create an industrial society, but without those bourgeois values having already been instilled in the populace. Right. So tricky, tricky. I mean, let's put it this way. There's Russia and there's Russia. Meaning the Russian Empire before 1917 is not the Russia that we know today. So it includes Eastern Poland. It includes the Baltic states. It includes Finland. It includes areas that are much more bourgeois and industrialized. So what most people don't understand is that, or even know about, 
is that the Russian Empire before World War One, before the Russian Revolution, the Russian Empire was the manufacturing center of the world. It was like China today. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, they don't know that. I don't. I the biggest, know that. the biggest factories in the world were in the Russian Empire. So they were a newly industrialized country. They're industrialized in the second industrial revolution. They're industrialized in the 1880s and 90s. Um, and they are a low wage site for capital investment for capitalists around the world. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, and that, that's actually a low wage site of production for the rest of the world is, you know, that's kind of a crucial way of saying it because the, you know, so for me, you know, when I think of Lenin now, it's, uh, so there's, uh, you know, Marx is coming into his own during the first international and he's arguing with, you know, everybody at the time. And, and then, but then it's, it's really, uh, mostly like after his death in the second international, when everyone's Marxist, and this is where you have the revisionists and the, and the, the revolutionaries. Um, and mm -hmm. so you have Lenin and, and Luxembourg famously, like the two main revolutionaries in that movement. And then the, uh, is the, the turning point. So, uh, when the, the, the Germans, uh, the German socialist party get, you know, signs off on war credits for world war one, that that's when mm -hmm. Lenin goes, you guys said you were, you guys said you were, you know, anti-war and that all these wars are capitalist wars. And here you've, you know, been saying all this reformist revisionist shit, you know, or you're, you're talking out both sides of your mouth, still saying, mm -hmm. you know, still making revolutionary statements like Kotsky, but at the same time, like all you really mean is like parliamentary action and unions or whatever. So, so what gives now you're signing off a of war credits. We've been betrayed. This is going nowhere. Guess what? The revolution is not going to come from Germany. It's going to have to come from here. And so then, you know, and so he starts pushing for the, the, what becomes the, rev, the, the, the Russian revolution, right? He starts pushing That's for right. that as a response to feeling betrayed here. Right. Well, there was a preceding revolution. There's the 1905 revolution in Russia. Right. That comes as a result, also like the Russian Revolution of 1917, from the defeat of the uh, Russian government in war. So they were defeated by the Japanese that prompted the 1905 revolution in the Russo-Japanese War. They were defeated by the Germans in World War One, and that prompted the 1917 revolution. Um, and already after the 1905 revolution, people like Kautsky did acknowledge that maybe the European revolution is going to start in Russia. And, and a big part of the reason being, you know, workers are more comfortable or seemingly well, well off and getting gains in the imperial core. But these, you know, that's they, actually these, not the reason. That's not that's the actually reason. not the not the reason. The reason is that czarism is brittle. In other words, it's not that the workers are better off in the West because you'd be hard pressed, actually. Like, you know, the world before World War One, the you know the proletariat is pretty downtrodden, pretty exploited. I but mean, Lenin, there are Lenin did believe in the the labor aristocracy thesis, though. The, though did he not? Like, I thought he did. He did, but he, the main problem for him was not the labor aristocracy. It was the labor bureaucracy. So there's a difference. The labor aristocracy is, you know, better paid workers internationally and within countries. 
the labor bureaucracy, which is based on the labor aristocracy, is actually more of a problem because the labor bureaucracy is interested in preserving the workers' movement as an end in itself rather than as a means to an end of socialist revolution, right? So it's, 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 not, it's not really, that's not really the issue. The issue is that um, the czarist state was manifestly in crisis and vulnerable to revolution. And the Marxists believed, they really did believe in permanent revolution, in the Marxist idea of permanent revolution going back to the 1848 revolutions, which is that the only way a democratic revolution can be successful is through the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right, so they saw the czarist... Yeah, when you say the Marxists, you're talking Kautsky. about... You're talking about Kautsky. Kautsky. Yeah, Babel, Kautsky, like the mainstream Kautsky... Marxists. Kautsky to Rosa, though, like basically almost everybody but Lenin ends up being super skeptical of Bolshevism. During oh, sure. Lenin, during Lenin's lifetime, saying, well, you want to have this top-down, you know, small group calling the shots. It's not going to go well. You know, what he meant by that, though, Kautsky, was a majority peasant country, Russia. And especially after... Um, the Russian Empire had been forced to give up most of its bourgeois territory, the Baltic states, Poland, Finland, right? And also the westernmost part of Russia itself. So the minority that Kautsky has in mind is not only the Bolsheviks, but the Russian proletariat, right? Uh, the Russian working class. Um, so he was skeptical about that. Um, but really what he was skeptical about was revolution in the West. In other words, of course, Kautsky understood that if there was communist revolution in the West, that changes everything in terms of the condition of the Russian revolution. But Kautsky did not think that revolution in the West was going to happen. Right. And therefore, he kind of a priori assumes the isolation of the Russian revolution. And he also kind of helps make it happen. Right. Because he is he is opposed to the communists in Germany taking power, right? And that's, you know, again, a complicated question. There are many reasons for that. Basically, he ends up agreeing with the SPD um, in all the substantial matters, which is that they thought that a communist revolution in Germany would just result in occupation by the United States, right? Um, at the end of World War One, they thought, if, if you have a communist revolution, so they took Woodrow Wilson again. They, you know, Woodrow Wilson's a good villain of history. Yeah, he is. They took, they took him seriously because he said he would negotiate with a democratic government in Germany, but if there's not a democratic government in Germany, then it's unconditional surrender, meaning the U.S. has to occupy Germany. Right, and so the SPD was the only... Uh, Wilson actually wrote a book on Germany. He was a professor of history, of political history. He wrote a book on, on the German state before World War I. He, he understood, uh, you know, that it was a Prussian absolutist state, but with a Reichstag. And he knew that the largest party in the Reichstag was, were the Social Democrats, right? And, of course, Wilson was an anti-Marxist, but he, he knew what was going on, right? He thought that what you had was a kind of artificial radicalism in Germany due to the fact that it was undemocratic. Right. But he saw the SPD as, OK, they're willing to negotiate. They are a democratic regime. 
that we can negotiate with, he would have seen a communist revolution as, okay, all deals are off. Now we have to invade and occupy. As right. well, and they, they, you know, and, and Wilson does invade or participate in the invasion in 1918, right? So, yeah, he's, um, I would say that Wilson is for a non punitive piece. So, what happens later, the occupation of the Ruhr by the French, Wilson's not a fan of that. And in fact, I think that even happens when Wilson's already incapacitated by a stroke and he's about to leave office anyway. He's on his way out. Um, you know, so again, why would people like Ebert and Scheidemann and Kautsky, why would they be against the communist revolution in Germany? You know, they're Marxists. They want socialism. They know that they're not having socialism because they think that, you know, it's World War One. Germany's been defeated and, you know, they they face the overwhelming military strength of the United States, France and England. And so it's just not the time for a communist revolution. It's not a time for proletarian socialism. It's not a good time for the dictatorship of the proletariat. So they think that Lenin and Luxembourg are, you know, ultra radical. You know, they're committing a kind of revolutionary folly, you know, um, and they're engaged in an illusion about what's possible. And, you know, it kind of turns out to be true. Right. But again, like Kautsky also helps make it true. Right. And how, so, and how does he help make it true, though? Well, because he is an opponent. You know, Rosa Luxemburg is a member of his party, the Independent Socialist Party, uh, Social Democratic Party of Germany, the USPD, that splits from the SPD during the strikes during World War One. So there are strikes against the war by the workers, and Kautsky's part of the party that splits from the SPD that supports the workers, striking. Whereas the SPD is for civil peace during the war, for national defense and civil peace, so they're against the war, the uh, the strikes. The USPD are for the strikes. Luxembourg and her tendency are part of the USPD. Okay. Um, and they split from the USPD only in 1918. Now those strikes that happened in 1916 are part of the reason why Lenin thinks a revolution is possible. So when Lenin goes back to Russia in 1917 and calls for all power to the Soviets, all power to the workers and soldiers councils, he thinks that this will trigger a revolution in Germany, which does. It actually does. Right. But that's based on the fact that the workers have already struck against the war in 1916. Right. So it's a complex history. There are many layers here. It's not that, you know, Lenin was this kind of ultra radical who just wants to impose communism by force, even in a poor country that's not ready for socialism. He's part of a world revolutionary movement. You know, Eugene Debs, who is the kind of spiritual leader of the Socialist Party of America. He's not the lead theoretician or the lead organization man, but he's the spiritual leader. He says from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, I'm a Bolshevik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, he, he kind of gets radicalized when the populist party fizzles out, right? In the 1890s, but certainly by World War One, like, there's no difference between Eugene Debs and Lenin and Luxembourg. Like, these people, and he writes that, by the way, about being a Bolshevik, he writes that when Luxembourg is murdered, right? So when Luxembourg is murdered, he writes an article saying, we're with the communists. I'm a Bolshevik. Why? Because Luxembourg was a Bolshevik 
This is what people don't understand. She was a joined the Third International. She supported the Russian Revolution. She wanted to bring that revolution to Germany. She's a Bolshevik, right? So all this kind of left communist, council communist stuff that tries to claim Rosa Luxemburg against Lenin, it's bullshit. It's after she dies. They really abuse her memory. Interesting. So this, yeah. but, but at the same time, though, she, like Kotsky, you know, everyone had their critiques of Lenin. She was critical. She was critical. What she said was, she said, Lenin and Trotsky are good comrades. Of course, I support them, but I'm not going to be able to underwrite everything that they're forced to do in Russia. And she said, as a Marxist, I remain critical. That's all that anyone can ask of me. Huh. So, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of things to get into here. Um... So, uh, There's no uh, principle difference between Luxembourg and Lenin. There's no difference of principle. No. Well, and that doesn't make their idea at the time the right idea. It does then, not. But then, if it was the right, but then even if it was the right idea, and so usually this is the position that I will take with a person in the United States today who still thinks that it's important to spend a lot of time talking about Lenin. I will say, so then, okay, you know, this doesn't make it right on the one hand, but let's say it is right. Okay, so what? how does that still make it applicable how does it translate? to yeah. us today, especially when, you know, this is – I, I want to read something that actually – it's just – it's a – this is mm-hmm. something that I've – if I can find my quote here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is Trotsky. Um, and, and so, like, really quick, actually, maybe – uh, so for there's a lot of names and there's a lot of I, I know that when you're first getting into left history stuff it's just all like there's a lot of acronyms they all kind of blur together and then there's a lot right. of names Kotsky and Trotsky sound the same and so it's like there's so, <laughs> there's so many reasons to be confused when you hear a person doing this rundown Kotsky was a German guy and uh, Tr- actually he's Czech no really yeah Czech well, Jewish um, and of course, his name is really Kautsky, whereas Trotsky's name is Bronstein. Okay, well, not Bernstein, everybody. You know, it's just it just makes it more confusing, right? But yeah. He, but uh, but Bronstein, Bernstein, Kautsky, Trotsky. Trotsky's the one who gets offed by Stalin later on, uh, but he's also the one who organizes the Red Army, right? And so, arguably, yeah. like the successes of uh, October. Uh, 1917 wouldn't have occurred or wouldn't have been possible without Trotsky or at least he ends up being yeah. the one who a lot of people look to and they a lot of people saw saw him as like the sort of natural um, continuation of, of Lenin and, and Trotsky by the way I mentioned the 1905 revolution in Russia um, Trotsky was elected to be the head of the Petersburg Soviet in the 1905 revolution as a relatively yeah. young man um, he was the kind of celebrity face of the 1905 revolution in Russia. So he's no obscure figure by any means, right? And he was an opponent of Lenin up to 1917, um, but then they joined forces. And he was so an he's, opponent on what basis? Uh, because the split in the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party was very contentious before World War One. So that's the Bolshevik-Menshevik split. Um, and he was basically an opponent of Lenin's split of the party. 
um, even while he was critical of the other Mensheviks. So he's part of a group of like left-wing Mensheviks. Um, but he doesn't think he and Rosa Luxemburg both have criticisms of Lenin as basically saying that the split that Lenin made in the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party was uh, unjustified, unwarranted. That it was kind of premature that Lenin thought that he was purging the reformists, but he wasn't. Right. Um, and, you know, it's that's a that's a complicated question, too. Um, well, the, Men- the Mensheviks wanted you know, your rank and file worker to be able to have, uh, to be members of the party. You know, this was a crucial thing and, and that yes, Lenin was without like, being disciplined cadre. Yes. And Lenin was like, no, we want it small. We want it disciplined. Right. So this was like the big split, right? In 1903, that's the split. And that split changes its significance over time. Meaning what Lenin said was, if we were a mass party, then we could have every worker who votes for us say that they're a party member. But because we're not yet a mass party, we need a more uh, restrictive definition of membership. Right. So he's saying to start out, you can't just have a wide open door policy. You need to have like a more hardcore cadre uh, party in order to build a mass party. And when we're a mass party, then we can be more loose in our membership criteria. But he said they, the reason he said the reason that they wanted to do that and also why they got the support that they did for that definition of party membership, he said actually already criticized before that. You're relying on their support for your definition of party membership. And therefore you're engaged in something unprincipled. You're kind of liquidating the party before we've even gotten off the ground. Um, and so, you know, I'm sympathetic to Lenin's perspective in 1903. The problem is, is that that's not like a kind of be all and end all definition of Lenin's politics, nor is it some abstract principle like transhistorical principle. It's a perspective that he had at a specific moment in the development of the movement that he was part of. Um, and so, you know, a lot of Leninists today, the so-called Leninists, whether Trotskyists or Maoists or Stalinists, I mean, usually the Stalinists and the Maoists are are not like this. It's usually the Trotskyists who have this kind of restricted notion of membership that they think is like Bolshevik. Um, it's a it's a mistake to pose things that way, and what they're doing is trying to justify their small propaganda groups and, you know, a kind of restrictive and disciplined membership of those groups rather than... Yeah, and in my experience, yeah. and in my experience, they consider advanced workers to be anybody who just says revolution a lot and then yes. wants to read or recite, like, their summaries of primary texts right. without, without having any sort of skepticism. Right. And insofar as you're a skeptical worker, you're considered not advanced. I'm just, I, mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I to me, bad. to me, it's like, a, a, I like, I'm sorry, but like, I've just been through a bunch yeah. of these organizing experiences where I'm like, I'm sorry, idiots, susceptible idiots who are like super susceptible to, to just nice sounding rhetoric are being called advanced mm. workers, regardless of their, of, of what they do. Or I, I'm just like, I'm sorry, you're advanced because you, you say you want to, revolution and you say dialectical historical materialism a lot right so right yeah no okay so i would say the first thing that 
we need to acknowledge and and I'm including you and me and and our listeners and viewers is that what passes for Marxism today broadly yeah certainly what passes for Leninism today or Trotskyism is simply not like it's it's a parody of itself it's a joke right like this is not like you can't look at people who call themselves Marxist today Right. And evaluate historical Marxism on the basis of what it looks like today. Right? And I think it's, it's probably not. pretty easy for me or anyone who's been through similar experiences to what I just described to take yeah. to take that and project it onto a situation, you know, you know, back then. Right. And mm -hmm. assume, assume it must have been a similar experience then. Um, right. And but you're saying, no, these it's this is a this is the farce. You know, this is the... Yeah, it's a farce. And so, you know, like, again, the tiny leftist groups, the tendencies that exist now, are not models of revolutionary party organization, right? I mean, it is the case that Lenin has been abused to justify all sorts of things to justify hypersectarianism, to justify opportunism, you know, and if you take different writings from different points in his career, you can use those things to justify like the opposite perspectives, right? Um, and, you know, but even very straightforwardly, like what you were talking about earlier, the imperialism, you know, idea, which is not unique to Lenin at all. That's a second international perspective on imperialist capitalism. Um, it's used to justify basically third world nationalism. It's used to justify anti-colonial nationalism, which is the exact opposite of what Lenin was arguing for. Lenin was arguing for revolution in the metropolitan countries, in the core capitalist countries. He was not saying, therefore, we cannot have revolution in those countries because of the labor aristocracy, and therefore we must have revolution, you know, in the, in the colonial world. Uh, he wasn't setting up that distinction, like that kind of opposition uh, at all, right? Um, Which is what the labor aristocracy theory kind of becomes today. Is... That's what it becomes today. Right. Yeah, it's it's nonsensical. Um, you know, Lenin was a world revolutionary. He was part of a world socialist movement. Um, he saw these things in tandem and not just as a matter of solidarity, but as a matter of a direct international global organization, right? So, you know, of course, when he's looking at countries like India and China at the time of World War One, at the time of the Russian Revolution, of course, he's seeing them as integral to global capitalism and under international domination by the advanced capitalist countries. And he's seeing that as a factor, like India is a factor in the British Revolution, right? So when India is a colony of Britain, revolution in India is revolution in Britain. That's what it is. It's not like something else. It's not separate. And similarly, I mean, maybe obviously, revolution in Britain is revolution in India. Uh, you know, because clearly, like, obviously, if India is under British control, then a revolution in Britain 
necessarily means a revolution in India. Right. Well, um, I mean, and it would be pretty easy for a person to say, yeah, but the interests of people in Britain are, you know, even if they, you know, at the the level of rhetoric or something, you know, says that's any, really anything not true. In solidarity, there's not necessarily going to be. You could have two sides of a struggle, both just say, well, yeah, but you're a bunch of cockroaches. We don't care about you. Right. I mean, so, what I'd say is this. Uh, what I'd say is that um, the British working class had more of an interest in socialist revolution in England than the Indian bourgeoisie did. Right. So there is a colonial bourgeoisie. There is a right. Indian ruling class that is part of the British Empire. And, you know, so we think of it as like, oh, well, the British working class is against, you know, Indian revolution. Not at all. I mean, in fact, the real danger would be that a British proletarian socialist revolution might be invaded by Indian troops to put it down. I mean, they were using Indian troops in World War One. Do you think that they wouldn't have used them to put down a British working class revolution of course they would have now of course for, from someone like lenin's perspective all of that means revolution right so it it you know it, it it's precisely it's not just about like a balance of forces or conflict of interests it's about political crisis you know and so again the imperialism idea is about the form of capitalist state in the advanced metropolitan capitalist core countries and how they how those states extend themselves in the world and come into conflict with each other but for him that's an argument for why revolution is possible and necessary it's not an argument for why revolution is not possible it's also clearly not a revolution for why what's necessary is like a third world nationalist revolution you know, like, in other words, Indian nationalists are going to be anti-socialist. They're going to be anti-socialist in India, and they're going to be anti-socialist in Britain. And in, indeed, they were. Right? So, you I know, think again... The, signif this... the significance of what you're saying could easily be lost on a person who's not had these sorts of... Uh, ex these conversations where if you are white or in the first world those are two things you could be of color and still be in the first world what gets called the imperial court you know and then and and you know you might be working class you might be socialist whatever you're well you, you're in a there's like this sort of like uh you know who's a yeah. good figure for thinking about this um there's um it's dutt who is one of the founders of the british communist party and M.N. Roy, yeah, who is an Indian who is one of the founders of the Third International, one of the founders of the Indian Communist Party. He also, I think, is one of the founders of the Mexican Communist Party. So the world before World War One, and in and through and during World War One, and in the revolutions that come after World War One, is a cosmopolitan world. There are Indian and African troops fighting in, in Europe during World War One. There are workers, so I mentioned that Russia is the manufacturing capital of the world before World War I. That also means that there are a lot of Russian workers who are migrant workers, who work in Western Europe, who work in the United States, who work in China, and go back and forth. Right. So the steamship is a real thing. Um, and there are 
Indians and Chinese in, in the Caribbean and in Latin America. There are Chinese in India and Chinese and Indians in Africa. Um, there is a global working class. There's a global working class. A lot of the Bolsheviks are living in the United States before World War I, before the revolution. There are Bolsheviks in the United States. And what do they do in the United States? They are organizers of the Socialist Party of America. They're organizers of Eugene Debs Socialist Party, right? And then they take that experience, right, of organizing in Russia, they bring it to the United States. They learn things organizing workers in the United States, they bring it back to Russia and participate in the revolution. It's a real world movement. And you're saying that this uh, Dutt guy and M. Roy are the places M. to M. go? M. Roy. M. Mm -hmm. Roy are the place to go for that. Yeah, because I was, where I was going to is basically, you know, in the same way that, you know, you, the the way that Democrats do identity politics today gets expanded to the world stage, or at least, you know, it, there's like this sort of pretense that it is. And so if you are considered first world, oh, well, therefore you're labor aristocracy, therefore there's no real, like, there's nothing that you can do, right? You're, you're uh your contribution can only be to try to, it's a weatherman underground thing. You know, like the only thing, uh, the only thing. I mean, look, whatever, we've so. gone through a major degradation of not just Marxism, but of the socialist movement. And it's turned into a kind of, well, first of all, it's a petty bourgeois movement, the left. And they really believe in the wretched of the earth, right? They believe in this kind of Christian ideal you know, whether they're Christian or not, you know, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That was never the Marxist vision of proletarian socialist revolution. So it was never a vision of the most oppressed or the most revolutionary. In fact, that, that was never the idea. It, it did kind of become that way under Stalin, though, right? Like the it stopped being about workers and peasants and started being just the word, the oppressed. Right. And then so this became a, the oppressed, the exploited. You know, people's revolution, uh, you know, mobilizing the poor peasants against the rich peasants, you know, in in the collectivization of agriculture in the Soviet Union. I mean, there's a lot, obviously, involved. But again, the strategic vision. So why Lenin is important to me. Yeah, here we go. Is that he is one of the best, if not the best Marxist revolutionaries like he is a Marxist. He literally memorized all of Marx's works front to back. You know, I mean, he was like a complete Marxist, total Marxist. That was his whole life, his whole worldview. Um, and, you know, he he lived it. Um, and he was successful to a point. You know, in other words, he, he got it to the point of a workers' revolution in Russia. And I would just say, I would dare say, without Lenin, we wouldn't even be talking about Marx. If the Russian Revolution had not happened, we would not even be talking about Marx. Marx would just be an obscure 19th century thinker. It's Lenin who makes Marxism a reality after the Russian Revolution for good and for ill. Right. So there's a downside say. to that. There's a there's an upside to that. There's a downside to that. And maybe we're more cognizant of the downside of that, because now our vision of Marxism is just the Russian Revolution. Right. And that's really distorting. 
Um, Lenin was not a Russian revolutionary. He spent most of his adult life living outside of Russia. You know, as a revolutionary before the revolution. Well, this he is was the, the Marxist. This is, this is how the reactionary, like, white army, like, people would talk about it. Oh, it's a Jewish plot. These are all outsiders. They're not even Russian. Right? Right. And because the point is, what do you mean? Do you have to be a Russian? I mean, in other words... I mean, I don't Ameri think so. Obviously, I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, but, like, an, an American revolution, I mean, look, in terms of, like, a Marxist movement in the United States today, right... We're going to have to make use of militant workers, people who are organizers, who might be immigrants, who might be bringing, like, who might be immigrant workers who are coming here after experiencing radical organizing in other countries, right? So, you know, it's, you know, the idea that, I don't know what, like, white American workers can't be led by, like, labor militants who come from other countries why not you know i i have news for you you know like workers have no problem with that they really have no problem with that no. they're not going to see them as any more strange than they're going to see a white radical no i mean I, in you fact, know, probably of, le probably less so let's probably less strange because probably those people are more real than the fucking white radicals are yeah right i mean Got so blue hair you know we don't <laughs> <laughs> right I mean, so, you know, again, you know, the working class is a global working class. It is. Obviously, there are people who are provincial workers. Um, and obviously, there's more experience in the periphery of international labor than there is in the core. It's much more likely for a worker from Africa to have worked in Germany than for a worker in Germany to have worked in Africa today. But it's still a world working class. It is. Um, so, God, I've got a lot of questions for you. So, uh, but I one that I just want to get to on this note about the the global or international working class is, uh, I think I've heard you say something along the lines of, on the question of socialism in one country versus like international revolution, Trotsky and Stalin were both onto something and that this was, this signed the end of a period of Marxism and, a, and, and is a sort of, I don't know, like a real contradiction in there, in, uh, in Marxism. I mean, I would say I'm not, I'm not particularly sympathetic to Stalin. I think that, however, I do think that we're obligated to empathize with our opponents, meaning we, we are obligated to think about where they're coming from, why they think, how they think. Um, and so, you know, once the world revolution kind of comes to an end in 1924, then what are they supposed to do? You know, so Stalin follows a certain logic of trying to continue the revolution in Russia without world revolution. I mean, he's very explicit about it. He concludes right. that there's not going to be a revolution in Germany for the foreseeable future. And that's where he articulates socialism in one country. Um, now, again, from a, like a Trotsky perspective, that doesn't mean that like Trotsky thought that there was going to be a revolution immediately in the West. But he thought 
that if you abandon the perspective of world revolution, it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, again, very much like Kautsky, where Kautsky was like, look, there's not going to be a revolution in Germany. The Russians are on their own. They're not going to be able to produce socialism. Uh, They're going to be forced to industrialize their country and be very, you know, authoritarian and dictatorial in the bad way. And, you know, again, it's like, well, yes, Kautsky was right about the limitations of the Russian Revolution. Stalin was right about, you know, world revolution's over, we got to build socialism in one country. But it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, once you adopt that perspective, that undermines the communist parties in the other countries. It undermines, and it also, insofar as those communist parties have to defend Russia, it sort of cements the division between the social democrats and the communists. Yeah. Right? Um, And whereas precisely that's what had to be overcome. That, you know, in other words, really the proletarian socialist movement had to be restarted in the 1920s and 1930s. And the kind of concessions and adaptations that Stalinism engaged in foreclosed what was necessary. Now, by the way, that's also the perspective of the left communists or the council communists. So they think that like Leninism, that the problem with Leninism is that it is too restricted, too narrow, and ultimately too much identified with the Russian Revolution and its conditions. And therefore, they also think that we're kind of back down to brass tacks, we have to reconstitute the proletarian socialist movement. That's what leads someone like Karl Korsch to say, you know, the whole history of the workers' movement belongs to us. Anyone who wants to be a proletarian socialist, they have to include Lenin and Kautsky and Bernstein, and they have to include anarchists, right? They have to include anarchism, because really we need this entire history in order to achieve what we need to achieve. We can't take for granted that it all just ended up in Leninism, right? Now, so there's some truth to that. The problem is that if you become anti-Leninist, if you become, like, I don't know, opposed to the Bolsheviks and the October Revolution, if you just reject it, then you're really going to distort things. You're going to lose you know, what what it really was as a, as a historical phenomenon. So it's not about taking it as some kind of be-all or end-all or some kind of model, not at all. But if you reject it, you're going to end up distorting things. And you're, you're ultimately going to have to reject Marxism itself. In other words, the people who reject Lenin have to reject Marx in one way or another. In other words, they have to say, well, Marx was right about this, but he was wrong about that. Well, it's pretty easy right? for me. It's pretty easy for me to reject everyone after Marx and just say there are some fundamental questions, concerns, and a conceptual sort of approach to dealing with analyzing society that I want to take seriously and and kind of bring into how I. I mean, think what you're going to end up today, doing, right? My my old professor Moish Postone, right? Um, you know, he was very anti-Lenin, very anti-Lenin. And But he said, you know, Lenin didn't come out of nowhere. Of course, the problems with Lenin are also there in Kautsky, and they kind of go back to Engels. 
and they might they might even go back to Marx himself, right? So Poston sure. would say Marx himself theoretically was really great, but politically he was bound by the limitations of his time, and that Marx was like a traditional Marxist, and in that way, of course, Lenin is a Marxist. Right. But in the in the restricted way, the way that Marx himself was limited. And he says, you know, Rosa Luxemburg's criticisms of Lenin are great. But of course, Rosa Luxemburg herself is a traditional Marxist. And, well, and the, right. The Marxism as a as as a trying to be a totalizing worldview. Mm -hmm. As a as a, which becomes like a state ideology. Doesn't I mean, I think that some people think that that really starts in, in under Lenin. He's he's really just I mean he's just he's just doing it really good. The fact is it does come out of the second international, but and it comes from Marx and Engels themselves. We have to be and it comes from Marx himself. Like we have to be honest about that, you know. And so what I'm saying is that if you're a consistent anti-Lenin person, you're going to end up rejecting Marxism, and it just it it kind of falls apart. Meaning, what you're going to find is that then we're without any kind of political perspective even even one that is bound to its historical moment and might have some limitations you know that's that's conditioned by history but you're just going to say okay that's just the past and then you're going to entertain a kind of de novo perspective today you're going to so the way that i like to put it is well, of course, we're not going to repeat the Second International. We're not going to repeat Lenin. We're not going to like do it exactly the way they did it. But we're going to have to do something like what they did. And not only that, we're going to have to do something like what they did, and we're going to have to do it better than they did. So well, I if, mean, the... if we have to go beyond them, we need to first figure out what they did. What did, what did they get right? Right, okay. Right? And you know, what did they get right that we have to actually do better? And also, you know, what does it mean to achieve something like what they achieved? In other words, what's essential about what they did as opposed to inessential about what they did? Right. right? What's the core, like, essence or point? Right. So we shouldn't fetishize or reify history. We shouldn't, you know say, okay, we got to do it just like them. Like, they give us the script and we just have to follow it? Of course not. Absolutely not. Um, because people who thought that they were following the script ended up betraying it. Right? So... Well, and at the point that you're following a script, you're not based in the material world anymore, right? This is You're not. Right. And so. you're also not thinking anymore, like, let alone thinking critically. You know, and so, but again, we do have to reproduce at its core, in its essence, what they were able to achieve. We have to do at least as well as they did, and we have to do a hell of a lot better than they did. And I'm afraid that what people try to do is rather do something entirely different from what they did. So what I don't, you know, so, so what I'm hearing is that we, you, you, it, it's kind of that, you know, trope, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And so, you know, if well, we that's for damn sure. And if we don't, way. and if we want to overcome or go beyond or in any way achieve anything, cause they did achieve some things, then obviously you got to know what was achieved and also what you don't want to repeat. And so I think my biggest questions for you are going to be, 
the takeaways as far as your time spent reading the theory and history, uh, what are those things that we don't want to repeat or what are those things that you think uh, the critics later on are correct on? Um, and, and then, but also like, what are those things that are, you know, tried and true worth, worth taking to heart now? But before we, that's a, that's a bit, you know, that's a big question. And I'm yeah. wondering, do you want to step away, run to the restroom, get some water, do anything like that? I feel like this would be a good point to do that. And I would like to, so I could play some music, step aside, or you could answer a question that I could put out and then I'll just run off and well, I, I got you on my headphones. So I cool. do you want to take it no, okay. for a second or you're good? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Well, I want to lead off with this. I'm going to read this quote and then I'm just, and it, I think it will set the stage for you to start talking about like, uh, you know, Mm-hmm. The, these these you know these historical lessons, but for me, and and I, in the last conversation we had, I had offhandedly said, well, actually, I like you know those three volumes by Kolkowski. Um, you said you said that the, that was a screed. I think as far as screeds go, you're not going to find a screed that you know it's pretty rare to find a screed that is so uh, diligent and methodical and has an epistemological analysis and method. You know that, that you're not familiar. You're not familiar with religious literature, evidently. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> like religious literature can go on and on and on and be very rigorous logically and epistemologically and be very consistent, and it can still all be just a kind of a screed, a, okay. the rantings of a madman. <laughs> so, and, and, and so. By the how... way, maybe Marx's Das Kapital is that. Right. Like, in other words, there's no guarantee that Marx's Das Kapital is not just the ravings of a madman. Yeah. There's no guarantee well, that it's not. No, there's no, <laughs> there's no guarantee. Uh, you know, as far it's it's pretty And that's big... the way most rational readers have regarded it. In other words, most people, you know, like John Maynard Keynes, you know, like they're like, OK, it's interesting, you know, but Marx is just a socialist ideologue. Yeah, but he also thought we'd have a 15-hour work week by now, and so Keynes... Keynes it, it, no, Keynes of, is his own problem, right. No, none, I'm of not these, saying... none of these people take to heart the most important questions, I think, from Capital, or much less insights. So, and, and that's kind of my whole you know thing with you know, Michael Heinrich and Paul Matic and also Grossman, but, you know, uh, and Pistone, is that they're all what they're doing is showing there are fundamental things here that it just seems like none of these people like Weber or Popper or Von Bon Boerk or Mises or Friedman or Keynes took seriously or took to heart. No, it's true. In fact, they all like misunderstand it in pretty fundamental ways. No, it's true. I mean, I was reading because we're getting ready in Platypus to teach social theory. So I was reading Durkheim on Marx and Marxism. And we're not going to include that in the readings for the summer because it's too, like, particular. Um, It's not, like, really core to Durkheim's own thought. But Durkheim says, you know, it's a very elaborate theory, but you can boil it down, like, the whole theory of value, you can boil down to just a few sentences, if not just a few paragraphs, right? So he's like, you know, we got three volumes of Das Kapital. He's like, I read it. And he's like, you know, actually... It, the, the whole theory of value is just in a few sentences, right? And, you know, and, and he basically said, you know, the problem is that this isn't, this isn't science 
alone, it's also revolutionary ideology. And he said, you know, that's okay. That's not like necessarily an argument against it, but let's just be clear about it. Right. Um, and so, you know, you know, he kind of had an open minded, you know, reaction to Marx. And he said, you know, this whole apparatus, this whole argument can be boiled down to a few kind of core points. And he understood what those are. And he said, you know, whether or not this is true, whether or not Marx's critique of capital and his theory of value is true, is unclear. And it is not proven by the three volumes of Marx's writings. It's not like Marx proves it. He elaborates it, but he doesn't prove it. Like he provides a lot of evidence, but the definitive proof is lacking. And he says, because we'll, we'll really only know that if this socialist revolution happens, right? We're not going to, we're not going to really know it, you know, like whether Marx is valid or not, you know? Huh? Yeah. I'm going to have to read right? that. So the, the, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't see how see, I, I never, I, I just don't see how the conclusions uh, being wrong necessarily undermine the, we're only going to know tendencies or mechanisms of capital itself. Well, we're only going right? to know whether these mechanisms that Marx thought were leading to the necessity of overcoming capitalism. We're only going to know that if the working class tries to overcome it. Right? right. So in other words, until because it could turn out that the problem is quite different from what Marx thought. Well, and I, I think that it's highly likely that capitalism could last another million years. The space colonization and automation uh, or AI could make it so that you have capitalism without capitalists and even, a, you know, professional managerial class. To, for, for the most part, that shit could become AI like the Matrix. But I think there's it's if for it to be capitalism, there's still going to have to be exploited labor power. So uh -huh. which is my fundamental concern is about labor power well which is not just exploited labor power but the reasons why in other words what's the source of the social compulsion that reproduces the exploitation of labor power right in other words not just okay are there exploited people but the reasons for it right so what would you you're saying like what would make it characteristically capitalist is that people are still thinking that they're doing you know they're trading away their lives for wages uh under the oh I'm free to do this is that the is that what makes it capitalism as opposed to some other social form or what well it's also the case that the capitalists as a class as a world class are not free to not exploit the working class no, right in other words no. you know they're compelled to exploit the working class and the question is why are they compelled to exploit the working class what's the reason for that it's not just their personal greed and opportunism Right. It's because they could not preserve the value of their capital. Right. If they didn't. And again, as a collective society proposition, not just this or that individual capitalist, you know. Right. It's like or swim. Right. Yeah. I mean, Ford, you know, Fordism, you know, like he could say, I'm going to sell cheaper cars. I'm going to pay my workers more. I'm going to give them more leisure time. Like he could say that as an individual capitalist and it kind of worked out for him. But the capitalist class as a whole can't do that. And that's the social compulsion of capital. That's why it's capitalism. It's not capitalistism. Right. Like this system right, right, right. doesn't 
doesn't hinge on the greed of capitalists. It makes use of the greed of capitalists, but it doesn't rise or fall based on the greed of the capitalists. Capitalists could all be philanthropical, benevolent people. They're not going to be able to get rid of this problem, though. Right? So that's that's the real issue. And, you know, can we can we prove that? Like, in other words, it's not about, like, a logical proposition and a winning argument. It's about a political movement. And unfortunately today, I mean, one problem that we have today is that nobody had to argue, like Marx and Lenin didn't need to argue for the working class getting organized and fighting for socialism. The working class was organizing itself and fighting for socialism regardless of Marxism. Right. Whereas today, it's like Marxists are really reversed from what it originally was. Right, which is strange, which is peculiar, um, and well, which is a real liability. It's a problem, right? Because it, it, it yeah. raises the question of if it's even possible. You know, you, you brought up Woodrow Wilson. Um, you know, and I, the, the this book uh, by John Taylor Gatto, uh, "Weapons of Mass Instruction," has a quote by Woodrow Wilson in, I believe, 1909. He's responding to. Uh, Bolshevism, he's responding to obviously the Socialist yep. Party in America and he says, no in America there will be two classes of people, one by necessity must be much larger than the other and it will be of people who forego the luxuries of liberal education and that it will instead be people who are doers they will be practical people who are doers and the other class much smaller will be of knowers and you know, so, and this is and this is He's a progressive, you know, famously. And so, like, he's rolling out a progressive view of public education, which is taken for granted today. And, mm-hmm. and you know, so, like, the, you know, the current education system as well, at, which, and, and, you know, he goes into this, like, from the outset, the idea of age-segregated uh, uh, compulsory schooling with, a like, this kind of grading system as it currently mm-hmm. exists is all a part of creating micro hyper intensified intra class antagonisms that cr- people create their identities around and it makes it almost impossible to organize people or for people to be able to actually have solidarity and then uh, the internet itself is developed by people who are into cybernetics and anti-communism so there's just like cooked into you know, how everything thing, is built cooked into how everything about is the built old, the old socialist movement so we tend to think of movements as starting with young people. Yeah. That's not what the old socialist workers movement was. No. In other words, it wasn't like, you know, young people who don't know whether they're going to become a professional or whether they're going to be a wage laborer. It was about people who were adults who were wage laborers who understood this was their lot in life. Right. Right. They weren't thinking, you know, of course there were some who always wanted to be petty bourgeois and maybe believed in get-rich-quick schemes, but, you know, those those are, like, few and far between. It was rather people who understood, okay, I'm a working person, this is my life, you know, and what can I do about it, right? It wasn't, you know, kids in school who really want to be professionals, right, who don't want to be wage laborers, right? So... That's that's another problem, um, you know. And again, 
Marx and Marxism. So Marx and Engels arrive on the scene, and there's already a working class movement for socialism underway. And then the later Marxist movement, right, really takes leadership of an existing movement, doesn't create that movement. Um, and they are able to do that only because that movement has what appeared to have been an objective logic of its own. So they could kind of foster a subjective awareness, raise the horizons of that movement, but that movement existed. Which means but anyway, that the, the, yeah. the, the theory all the way through is kind of based on a situation we're not in. So, yes. So the question of what is of use then becomes a, a huge problem. And then, and for me, at least, I think that what I like about Platypus is that you struggle with that problem and take it seriously yeah. as opposed to being like, no, we can just keep repeating these scripts. But as far as the mm -hmm. use value of, of, of appealing to or even trying to salvage the good name of Bolsheviks, I just want uh, – this is the quote from Main Currents, Volume 3. I'm just going to go for here where he's okay. – he, he uses Trotsky and it's, it's basically – this is all Trotsky. So – it goes, the state is, of course, organized in the interest of the working masses. This, however, does not exclude the element of compulsion in all its forms, both the most gentle and the extremely severe. In the new society, compulsion will not only not disappear, but will play an essential part. The very principle of compulsory labor service is for the communists quite unquestionable. The only solution of economic difficulties that is correct from the point of view, both of principle and of practice, is to treat the population of the whole country as a reservoir of the necessary labor power. The principle itself of compulsory labor service has just as radically and permanently replaced the principle of free hiring as the socialization of the means of production has replaced capitalist property. Labor must be militarized. We oppose capitalist slavery by socially regulated labor on the basis of an economic plan obligatory for the whole people and consequently compulsory for each worker and without which the replacement of capitalist economy by the socialists will forever remain an empty sound. No social organization exempt the army, ex ex exempt the army has ever considered itself justified in subordinating citizens to itself in such a measure and controlling them by its will on all sides to such a degree as the state of the proletarian dictatorship considers itself justified in doing and does. Now I'm almost done. We can have no way of we can have no way to socialism except by the authoritative regulation of the economic forces and resources of the country and the centralized distribution of labor power in harmony with the general state plan. The labor state considers itself empowered to send every worker in the place where his work is necessary. The young socialist state requires trade unions not for a struggle for better conditions of labor. That is the task of the social and state organization as a whole, but to organize the working class for the ends of production, to educate, discipline, distribute, group, retain certain categories and certain workers at their posts for fixed periods. To sum up, the road to socialism lies through a period of the highest possible intensification of the principle of the state. The state, before disappearing, assumes the form of the dictatorship of the proletariat, as in the most ruthless form of state, which embraces the life of the citizens authoritatively in every direction, which for me, in terms of my short term survival and my relative freedom, if someone says, let's try that again, 
I'm going to look at, well, I've got this relative freedom I have now, and you're saying give that all up on the hope of someday the state will wither away, and someday I'll once again have freedom with my time and my energy to choose what I do. But in the meantime, I'm going to have to forego that for what? An, an indefinite period. And so for me, that's not a very good proposition. Um, mm -hmm. And so I guess I want to hear what, you know, you're kind of, maybe you can historically contextualize it, talk about your response on that. I'm going to step away for a second, but I'll still be able to hear you. Okay. Um, so it's good that Kolakowski acknowledges that this is a proposition of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, in other words, that it's meant to be a transitional phenomenon. It's not meant to be a permanent feature of socialism or communism. So the question is how much the experience of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, China, Korea, Vietnam, Cuba is really applicable or appropriate to what that would mean in a place like the United States. So I always like to make reference to a piece by Trotsky called If America Should Go Communist. And it's from 1935. So it's from the period of the New Deal. It's from the period of the Great Depression. Um, and he says, look, what we, you know, Bolsheviks had to try to accomplish in Russia in the early years of the revolution through state compulsion would happen in the United States through the power of the almighty dollar. In the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right. So, you know, he says, you know, look, we had to work with what we had to work with, namely the state. And in that way, the the state in the Soviet Union, which was not the dictatorship of the proletariat, by the way, not really, because dictatorship of the proletariat is an international proposition. It's not a country by country. Not only is socialism not a national proposition, but the dictatorship of the proletariat is not a national proposition. But, you know, so there is continuity between the czarist state and the Russian revolutionary state, just as there was in Eastern Europe and in China and in Korea and Vietnam. That continuity, and Cuba. Being, that continuity being what? That just as under capitalism, under ordinary conditions of capitalism, those were authoritarian states with a great deal of unfreedom and compulsion, state compulsion. So it was the case after the communist revolution, right? But that's, I do, I do, I do, that's see where I always come in, at least somewhat sympathetically to the situation of people in the, in this situation, because it's like, you know, Lenin's, Lenin is coming from a, a time when, uh, yeah, there wasn't the possibility of public happiness, right? Like this is, uh, you know, the idea of public happiness, as we were talking about earlier, where people are able to have societies for critical discourse, uh, as we're doing now, did not exist. It, these, these I mean, what I'd say is this. That was suppressed you, by the czar of the time, right? So, If you look at this, the Soviet Union, um, the history of the Russian Revolution, um, you know, you could say that actually the Bolsheviks made things worse than they were under czarism. You could say that. That's a plausible argument even while you could point to some things that 
for a notable improvement. You could say it was worse. Meaning when the peasants were simply on the land doing their thing and spontaneously moving to the city to find wage labor and, you know, moving abroad or going back to the land, you know, as conditions warranted that, you know, maybe is the problem of war communism, of a kind of militarization of labor during the civil war in Russia. But that's not what you really see in the 1920s. In other words, if you look at the period of the new economic program, the NEP, um, you're not going to find this kind of uh, state compulsive labor, militarized labor. You're not going to see that either in the cities or on the land. What happened in the Soviet Union, a lot of what we now consider to be the worst aspects of the Stalinist era were really conditioned by the Great Depression. So the Great Depression made it less likely, less possible to have foreign investment. So in the NEP period, there was a great deal of foreign capital investment. There was trade. Um, after 1928, you have the first five-year plan. You have um, the forced collectivization of agriculture. So why does it happen in 1928? Because of the Great Depression. Because foreign investment dries up. The possibility of foreign trade dries up. Right? And that's, if you think about, like, the worst period of Stalinism, it's that period. It's the third period Stalinist forced collectivization. Third it period. Is, so there were two other there are two other periods. So what? So there's well, this. the two periods, the three periods there refer not to the history of the Soviet Union, but refer to how people regarded um, world revolution, the possibility for world revolution. So the first period in that picture is that of World War One and the Russian Revolution and the German Revolution, and Hungary and Italy and that kind of stuff. The second period is the period of post-war stabilization in the 1920s. And the third period is the crisis of capitalism with the Great Crash and the Great Depression. So they thought that that would lead to renewed socialist revolution, not only so in, in the West, right? Um, and that's why they thought that, you know, uh, the Great Depression was an opportunity for communist revolution in that in that five years, in the period from 1928 to 1933. After 1933, they changed their tune again, and it becomes defending liberal democracy against fascism. It becomes the popular front, right, that, that it's not the time for socialist revolution, it's the time to fight against fascism, mm. right? But um, the third period refers to the fact that we're no longer in a period of post-World War I stabilized capitalism, but now we're in a period of capitalist crisis and potential revolution. They give that up after five years, right? But in that time, they are forced to do things like the collectivization of agriculture and crash industrialization um, that are justified broadly by a perspective of renewed world revolution, right? So it's seen as like temporary, um, you know, it's seen as uh, we have to take a more proletarian line rather than a line of like accommodating capitalism 
because world capitalism is in crisis. It's no longer stabilized. So again, when you look at the NEP period of the 1920s, you won't see what we associate with Stalinism, which is like slave labor, basically, you know, whether of peasants or workers. Um, and then, of course, World War Two, you get uh, other kind of horrific conditions. And, you know, so now the five year plan is a failure, right? It, it doesn't work. There's a lot of uh, waste and destruction. All and, my fi- all my five year plans keep failing too. So you know what I mean. It's like... <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, but basically, you know, and then they have to find culprits. They have to find people to blame for the failure of the five year plan, and that's where the purge trials come from. Yeah. So and that's you know, and that's the the issue with trying to like this, the whole. You're trying to you're trying to add some layers of complexity here, but people think of there's purge. a real history. There's people a real social of... political history. But people think of purges, people think of show trials, people think of bread lines, gulags, and forced labor. And for me, I'm like, I'll take four of those, but I won't take forced labor. <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding. But at the same time... You like, won't take bread lines either, I don't think. No, I really don't want them. You know, preferably not. Um, I mean, And honestly, no, like the show trials... The psychic, the psychic wounds, you know, that are done on a, a population where you, where everyone is seeing right before their eyes, you know, one day we're told that this is true. The next day it's, this is true. And we're all supposed to just blink and say, okay, of course it is, you know, that, that, that's terrible. Right. You know, this, so I'm, I don't really mean to justify so, that. You know, I would say that there's no reason to abandon the original Marxist vision, which is that the compulsive aspect of the dictatorship of the proletariat is going to be minimized as much as possible. Um, in other words, it should not appreciably exceed the compulsion that exists under capitalism. And basically the idea is that any proletarian socialist revolution is going to inherit the same capitalist compulsion from this existing society. It's not like you can wave a magic wand and do away with the needs of this society overnight. You can't. The issue is going from coercion to just outright forced, right? Like this is, and you're saying that's not the goal. And in fact, that you're saying the original, it's not, it's not, it's not, what did you say? It's not supposed to be appreciably worse. Worse. Yeah. It's not supposed to be appreciably worse. And, you know, so again, it could very well be. I mean, this is the thing. We're looking at a history of revolution, especially when we're looking at Russia and China, but also Eastern Europe after World War Two, And, you know, Vietnam, Korea, Cuba, it's a little bit different. Um, but we are looking at countries where there was a great deal of devastation and that that was the condition for revolution. Right. Right. And so, military and socialist revolution in the United States. And it would be a shame if the conditions for that were World War Three, right? So, it shouldn't be that this society has to, at a material level, be completely devastated in order to have socialist revolution. It should rather be something quite different 
namely that it should come out of political crisis. It shouldn't come out of economic desperation and social destruction. It should come out of political crisis. And in that way, the building of a socialist party, a true socialist party, an oppositional socialist party, a socialist party of um, irreconcilable opposition, the growth of such a party would itself produce a political crisis in the United States. In other words, it, it itself would generate a political revolutionary possibility. Right. So it's not like, again, when we think of ourselves as like, I don't know what, we're like some marginal subculture here on the left and we're just waiting until like the zombie apocalypse and then that will be our chance to take over. It's like, fuck, no, that's not we, we wouldn't want that to happen. I, that's not going to happen. We that That's not desirable. That's not what we should want. We should want to build upon the wealth, prosperity and sociability of people as they are now. We shouldn't want them to be like degraded and antisocial and horrible and brutalized, right? And desperate that they're willing to do anything. That's not the basis for socialism, no, right? So this kind of nihilistic streak is yeah. the pits. Like, no, we have to reject that completely. You know, and working class people, of course, would never accept that, like, oh. nihilistic view. They would never accept that nihilistic view. Um, not in any kind of majority, you know. Uh, I mean, of course, there are countercultural working class people. There, there are. But sure, sure. Yeah. that's not the point, right? The point of Marxism and socialism is not to be, like, the most goth, no. you know? Right. The, <laughs> I mean, well, this, like... is, this is what, I mean, the me and my regulars on the channel here, like, call normie socialism is, you know, it's the idea that, like, yeah, we might be some fringe weirdos, but our, the things that we particularly believe in our specificity aren't necessarily all going to be very mainstreamable and that that shouldn't be the goal uh, is to make that all, you know, the normal sensibilities. No, like the, the goal is to center regular working people and not, yep. you know, yeah, we're, we're fringe weirdos, but we're not trying to make the, Hopefully that the not norm. too much so. Hopefully not too much so, you know, in other words, we should, we should try not to be um, as much as possible. Um, you know, not to say that we should be normie exactly, you know, the point is that people in this society suffer a great deal. And obviously, like, normies, like, have nervous breakdowns, go postal, become addicts, right. commit suicide all the time, right. right? So, you know, there's a lot of dark stuff even in your normal people, right? That's just there. Um, but we should not ask people to abandon their better values, right? We should not encourage antisocial behavior or antisocial attitudes. We should not encourage nihilism. Right. We might be able to help people make sense of their nihilism so that they don't go postal or, you know, become drug addicts, right? Or commit suicide. You know, we should, we should, you know, help them understand how and why they're suffering the way they are. Right. And, you know, maybe some bohemian intellectuals like ourselves, um, you know, can be some kind of a bridge, you know, 
Um, but we should not like look at people living in this society and and struggling and thriving also in this society. We shouldn't be alienated from those people. We shouldn't see them as the problem. Right. Well, and a lot of the people who do come to uh, through my channel, for instance, you know, and into philosophy and theory more generally burnt out in just, you know, just trying to survive and had been struggling with a variety of things and philosophy and theory became like a, a sort of way out of being suicidal in a, in a sense, like it, it in yeah. the sense that you're talking about, you know, for instance, like discovering, you know, reading a strange labor did that for me in a very significant mm -hmm. sense, right? It, it explained to me like the, pre, the prior decade of, of blaming myself or like loved ones for, for things that were larger structural issues. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so like, and, and to me, like that made me, made, you know, in a sense, it made it so I could forgive myself and other people who I had been blaming for problems that, you know, alt and that helped me overcome a lot of things. I think that a lot of people have that experience as they come to these kinds of things. And so, but at the same time, what I was getting at with Normie, when I use the term, I'm, you know, when a gamer uses a term and it comes out of gamer culture, they just mean non-gamers. <laughs> But because I'm not, that's not the sense I'm using it in. I mean, people who aren't spending all their time in philosophy and theory. That's all I mean. And I don't expect that, that, you know, in a in a post class society, everyone's going to spend their time doing philosophy and theory. I need to be able to, like, you know, <laughs> it, it's some hard. some need to be able to. I mean, there yeah. is a role for the socialist intelligentsia. There is. I mean, again, bring it back to Lenin, right? Um. And bring it back to Marx and Marxism and also Adorno, right? There's a role for a socialist intelligentsia. Um, you know, now they can't simply be taken in their own terms, but neither can the working class be taken in its own terms, right? It's the cross-fertilization. Um, you know, this is the Kautsky merger formula. It's, it's the working class and it's the socialist intelligentsia. And their combination which also embodies a contradiction, right, is necessary, right? But neither can be taken in their own terms. And, you know, again, we should not shy away from these things, right? So it's not about, like, culturally valorizing the working class as it is, nor is it taking our own counterculturalism or our bohemianism, you know, at face value, right? Like, we need to understand where that comes from, right? Um, and it does come from the contradiction of this society. It does come from the contradiction of this society in its own values. I mean, I think that, you know, Kolokowski, look, Kolokowski is traumatized by Stalinism. He is. You know, he's an Eastern European, you know, Polish dissident Marxist whose dissidence leads him to break from Marxism. And that really happens when he comes to the West and he encounters Western Marxism and he's like, oh, no, these people are full of shit. Right. And that's when he's like, you know what, if these people were in charge, they would just do the same thing as was done in Eastern Europe. Right. And so that's when he has his moment of like, it's all bullshit. Right. And by the way, main currents of Marxism by Marxism, he means socialism, meaning he thinks that the problem goes all the way back to the first socialists, like long before Marx, right? He thinks well, and he spends, there's a problem. He spends chapters and chapters in volume one way before Marx, right? He spends chapters and chapters and chapters on the precursors, 
Right. And so. he hates them just as much. And he thinks that their vision is just as dystopian. Right? Uh, not, a lot of, not a lot of hate comes through. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't come through. That's because he's trying to show the movement in its innocence. In other words, he has to account for how something that was so well-intentioned could go so wrong. Right. Right. And it, you know, and so he sees the problem in Marxism, starting with Marx, but certainly with someone like Lenin, is that there's a sort of gradual concession to necessity and a loss of the innocence of the original utopian vision. But he does think that the original utopian vision was also misplaced. I mean, Kolakowski becomes a born-again Catholic, like Christian. When he writes the main currents in Marxism, he's a total Christian, right? So his view is theological, which is that any attempt to fundamentally change the human condition is bound to fail. That's right. his perspective. You have to understand that's behind every word in that book, all three volumes, is the idea that you cannot secularize heaven. Socialism is trying to bring heaven down to earth, and that's actually the devil. And I suspect he's probably written as much elsewhere. Yes. Yeah. Right? So, you know, I mean, Kolakowski's an interesting thinker, but he, by the time he writes Main Currents in Marxism, he is fundamentally, he, he thinks it's a theological, ontological proposition that socialism is bound to fail. And so, of course, he's concerned, you know, that under the guise of realism, like maybe Leninism is the worst. Because it's saying, well, look, in order to achieve heaven on earth, first we have to do these things, right? So it's not like the utopians who who might skip that part, yeah, right? And so because Lenin is willing to say, you know, sacrifices must be made or whatever Kolakowski thinks Lenin says, because, of course, he takes all sorts of arguments from Lenin and mixes them up. Right. So arguments made before the revolution, arguments made after the revolution all become kind of one thing. And, you know, it's like, you know, he's saying this, this is at the heart of Marxism. Right. And ultimately, though, it's a problem of socialism itself. And it's, it's, you know, that might be true. That might be true. In other words, like maybe maybe the theologians are right, you know. Um, maybe like socialism is the ultimate blasphemy because we're trying to, you know, usurp the place of God. Right. Um, maybe they're right about that. Who knows? Right. Again, Marxism is based on the idea that. Capitalism has a contradiction that's going to entail a great deal of social destruction that might not be necessary. And, you know, in other words, there's no reason to accept it as human nature, right? Or as the human condition or as some ontological truth that ancient religions already understood and that we've simply forgotten, right? The idea is that capitalism is something new and different. Capitalism is something new and different. We suffer in a way today that people in the past did not suffer, actually. 
Right. Actually, and yes. that, you know, like the to just literally, you know, oh, this is just my place in the world, or this is just my lot in life, and then maybe you secretly think, actually, fuck the king, and this is all made up. But you know, instead, no, we live in a what we live in today is no, you're responsible for your failures and uh, get back to work. And, uh, and uh, so as an Amazon warehouse employee now, I can say there is something radicalizing about, I mean, I, I, just, I think, you know, for, for, mm-hmm. people, for mm-hmm. people who are in these warehouses, when you're in there, I don't know if you've seen the insides of these. Have you seen the mm-hmm. insides of these things? Only by... A representation, not in the flesh, no. Okay, so these things are, I mean, massive. We're talking bigger than the biggest malls. We're talking, we're talking bigger than like ten WalMarts stacked on top. Oh yeah, yeah, uh-huh. right. Yeah. And and I'd say like eighty five percent of that space is automated, right? Uh huh. So, sure. you know, all I have to do is match colors, and I get to listen to audiobooks, so it's nice. I just match colors, and the. Uh, the, the overwhelming majority of that building is sectioned off. Humans can't go in there, and it's just all of these, these, these things moving on their own the whole time. And so, it's just like that is the kind of potential, you know, that obviously can lead to serious transformation. And it, if people see it, you know, I think that it's hard to still believe that what things are going to keep being the same way in ten years or in twenty years, right? So. But right. I, but what I want to bring it back around, if you were if if you were ready huh? for this, is to before we tie everything up together, is is a little bit more on. So we've talked about Adorno, and the Frankfurt School, and then we talked about Bolshevism and Lenin, and uh, and then we spent some time on Kolokowski, uh, who's you know a, a huge critic of it or whatever. But I want to bring it back to a, these sort of principled uh, disagreements between people who are typically just of the critical theory tendency versus the people who are just of the the old left or you know traditional marxist orthodox marxist kinds of tendencies usually it's never the twain shall meet for, for some reason platypus has been able to for a long time now since 2006 uh foster a discourse where the the twain do meet and so uh as far as the lessons that can be learned from from hmm. these contradictions uh how how do how do they fit together for you and and what can we you know take from from all of this so far all right so you know just to demystify things um you know my own personal biography i was a member of a sectarian left marxist group the spartacist league i was a youth member and only for a few years um, but I got a pretty good education from them. And what, also, what, I got what, a, what, what were those years? My college years, 89 to 92, 93. Yeah. People always talk uh, about how the Spartacus League became this other thing over time or whatever. So I was just trying to place your. No, they, they would have become what people say they became by the time I was there, right? Okay. So maybe the difference is between the 70s and the 80s, you know? But, um,. So I had a certain kind of grounding in Marxism. I also did, as an undergrad, I studied revolution. So I studied, like, the history of the Russian Revolution, the history of the Chinese Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, the Korean Revolution, the Cuban Revolution. I studied these revolutions in detail. 
um, in terms of concretely what actually happened, you know, and what were the, you know, objective conditions, what were the political disputes, ideological differences, the debates. Um, and, and I also studied the Iranian left and the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution, and how it blindsided the, the communists in Iran and the history of that movement. So, you know, I studied, you know, history of communist revolutions. I also studied the Islamic revolution in Iran. And I also had a kind of mentorship. So I had professors who helped me with that in college at Hampshire. And I also had a, an outside teacher, Adolf Reed, who's a political scientist. Um, and who taught me a lot about the history of the black movement in the United States and also the labor movement in the United States. That was before I got at all exposed in any serious way to the Frankfurt School. Okay. So the Frankfurt School came later. Um, Adolf Reed actually was one of the people who told me to read Adorno. Oh. Yeah. Um, also Karl Korsch and also Lukács, you know, but he told me to read Adorno and Marcuse and Horkheimer. Um, and another friend of mine, uh, Reginald Shepard, who um, is a poet, he told me to read Adorno's writings on literature and art. Um, and so, you know, I did that. Um, and I feel like Adorno would not have made sense to me at all if I didn't have the background in Marxism that I had and then the background in political history that I had. Um, that it just would not have made sense. It might have made some kind of sense, but it, there would just be these huge holes and gaps in my understanding. Um, so I, I understood the Frankfurt School as a kind of meta-commentary on Marxism, right? Um, but that presupposed that kind of core reality to Marxism. Um, later, I studied things like philosophy and sociology and psychology. And I did that as a graduate student, and I did that mostly through teaching it. So I had to teach in the social sciences core as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. That's where I learned social theory. Um, you know, like the sociology that the Frankfurt School critiques. Um, it's also when I really learned Freudian psychoanalysis and how it was critically appropriated by the Frankfurt School. Yeah. Um, it's also when I studied with Robert Pippin, who's a kind of latter-day Hegelian. I studied, you know, Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche and philosophy. And but really under the guidance more of Adorno's writings on philosophy. But you know, I also had some academic setting for it, and then I started teaching it also, um, which you only really learn something when you have to teach it. Right. That's the real truth. That's the problem. Yeah, that's a problem. So you need well, students. It's a, it, it's a problem yep. if all you're doing is listening to videos and maybe reading some stuff, you know, like that's a, that's why you got to get engaged with something like yep. platypus or start a channel or do something. Yeah. Right. But so anyway, you know, I kind of came to these things maybe in some backward order or something. Um, you know, I had exposure to Marx before the Spartacist League. Um, I didn't really do the full dive into Marx until later, um, until I was a graduate student. And that's where Moish Pastone really um, helped me tie things together. You know, I had read Das Kapital, but I feel like 90% of it went right past me, yeah. right? Um, and so, you know, I had this sense of how Marxism had fallen apart, had disintegrated. So it had disintegrated, one way of thinking about it is, it had disintegrated into like the theory, 
going off in one direction and the practice going off in another direction. And that on both sides, there's a huge deficit from their separation. Right, so the Frankfurt School kind of notoriously, they're like Marxist theory divorced from practice, right? right? But then Marxism as a political practice, you know, Stalinism most of all, but also, you know, the kind of non-Stalinist or whatever Trotskyist, like sectarian Marxist left, pretty much is anti-theoretical, pretty much a-theoretical, um, not, not really able to explain that critical, self-critical dimension, right? It just Marxism just becomes like the best version of socialism or communism, the most consistent socialism or communism, and that's what scientific socialism means to them. Whereas I had the sense that, oh no, it's a, it's a critique of socialism, and actually a lot of what the Marxist left was, they were the kind of socialism that Marx critiqued. Right, that they sort of reproduce that if, however, in a kind of very small, marginal, degraded way. Right, so my sense of these things is, you know, I know what needs to happen, but I also am very sober and humble about what I can do, how I can contribute to this, and how I can't. So my ability to go out and organize the working class is pretty much non-existent. Not because I couldn't, but because that's just a different kind of task that I'd have to, you know, dedicate a lot of time and energy to that I just don't have. And it's not my kind of native environment. You know, I'm an adjunct faculty, so I guess I could get involved in organizing like adjunct faculty and unionizing like adjunct faculty or something like that. But that's not socialism. That's that's pretty much liberalism. And, you know, that's cool. And I'm sympathetic to that. But I've decided instead to really focus my extracurricular activity, my leisure time activity, into doing stuff like this, into platypus, right, which was started by my students. And, you know, students at elite schools, students who might become wage laborers, but might become professionals, um, intellectuals, intellectuals. So, you know, they were people, students who were interested in Marxism, who were leftists, and, you know, and I felt like, okay, so you want to be a Marxist, intellectually, you want to be political about it. I actually have something to teach you. I have something to, to help guide you in this. And, you know, so platypus is not like the be-all, end-all of Marxism or socialism by any means. It can't be that. But it's it's an important piece of the puzzle right and it's also important for us to start where we are now and where we are now is not just like an objective condition of capitalism but it's a state of the left ideologically and you know the left has been swallowed at an intellectual level by all sorts of non-marxist and anti-marxist ideas you know whether it's lacanian psychoanalysis you know, some kind of weird pre-Socratic philosophy or Heidegger or what have you, you know, it's it's been liquidated at an intellectual level. Um, and I, I feel a kind of moral duty to, to say and do something about that, not to just accept that. Even while that has happened, 
also for objective historical reasons. In other words, like these ideas that I consider to be non or anti-Marxist have an appeal that expresses something about reality, expresses something about social reality. But for that matter, as far as I'm concerned, that's no different from like some alt-right mysticism. You know, you were talking about like Jordan Peterson or like, I don't know, the Proud Boys, like save your, your ejaculations to save your vital masculine energy, right? Like to me, that's no more or less valid than Lacan is, right? And it's all kind of bullshit. But, you know, it all speaks to something real. Get out of here. Just get out. All right. I'm closing <laughs> I'm closing the stream. Everyone, it was nice. It was nice knowing you all. Catron's never coming back. No, and, you know, and I, I think that uh, there's a good case to be made that you are wrong on Lacan uh, because and, – and I think that for a lot of these people who are heavily influenced by Heidegger and Lacan, I, I, I personally can't stand most Lacanians and Derridians and Foucauldians. I've been to conferences back in the day. And I just like they're different. I can't stand it's not all one thing. I, but, they, yeah. but as far as like the think the thinkers themselves, I think if we try to do that sympathetic to their situation thing, I, I know the platypus kind of line is to reduce them to like a sort of social phenomenon. But I think that the, everything's a social phenomenon, though, including Marxism. But the it's just a question of what's the, worthwhile. It, it it does come down to a fundamental ontology. In other words, like Jordan Peterson's a Jungian psychologist right? right so he believes right. in like male and female essence anima and animus so it comes down to fundamental ontology and i'm sorry to say that lacan is based on fundamental ontology yeah right? but workers, like, Lord, what we got going on here. organizers who would po pose themselves as representatives or organizers of the working class who do not understand subjectivity are fucked out the gate they're not going to have any they're not going to, it's not, no, gonna we're go dealing well. with intellectuals. We're dealing with intellectuals. So my, my moral duty, sense of duty comes from just like students who are reading Deleuze and Lacan. And I'm like, don't fucking waste your life, man. Or if you're going to waste your life, waste it on something more respectable. You know, like if you want to be a leftist, you want to be a Marxist, don't go for the counterfeit adulterated stuff go for like the top shelf shit you know like let's let's get real here you know um let's have some you know like nice aged barrels not some malt liquor from the corner store you know sorry you know so i just it pains me like i feel like you know there's no reason to accept that stuff there really isn't and and I get it. I understand the appeal. I get it. But I also think it's just because my fucking colleagues expose students to this shit first. Right. In so, other words, like my so, colleagues would everything great and profound in Heidegger and Lacan and Deleuze is in Kant. Right. In other words, it's Kant, in Kant. thought about Kant thought about jouissance. Yeah. No, no. He did. No. Critique of judgment. Yes. Jouissance Aesthetics. is there. Jouissance is there. Not that word. No, okay, but so... the phenomenon. The phenomenon. The juxtaposition between pleasure and enjoyment. Most yes. people take these things to be the same thing. Kant, the whole aesthetic theory of Kant is based on the distinction of beauty from pl the pleasant. Absolutely. It's all there. 
and by the way, it's it's all there, meaning Spinoza, like, you know, the whole Deleuzian thing, Spinozism. Kant deals with it, and it's much better. It's at a higher level. But nobody ever reads Kant because nobody ever teaches it. In other words, my colleagues in academia don't have students read Kant. They have them read Deleuze. So, of course, the students don't know any better. They don't know any better. And they 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 think, oh, Kant was some kind of this or that. They have some, like, bastardized anti-Kantianism. And then, you know, they read Deleuze, and they're like, this is profound. And I'm like, this is stupid shit. This is noodling. This is, like, garbage. It's essayistic. If you want to really think about these things, you're going to find it for real in Kant and Hegel. Right. And I do, read I do, Spinoza, I, 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 do you know? I do think people need to read Kant and Spinoza, but I also think you're not going to get far at understanding the current situation without uh, more thoroughgoing analysis through jouissance primarily as far as uh, that's for me death drive has been be, uh, but specifically the lacanian conception well, okay, is a really out. big deal freud i teach freud okay if you want to do freud do freud don't do lacan freud is so much better so much better it's real like freud again go for the real shit so you know there's no reason so and what what so uh, you, Lord's death drive, what's your background deal with it in Freud. What is your background in Lacan? Your basis. I read to be Lacan before I read Freud. In other words, of course, you know, I'm a gay person. I was in college at Hampshire College in the eighties and in the early nineties. Of course I've read Lacan. I read Lacan long before I read Freud. I read Deleuze before before I really read much of Marx. You know, I've read this stuff. I get it. You know, I read, you know, Foucault, of course, Derrida. That's what was on my college syllabus, you know? And it was kind of, like, interesting. You know, I took it seriously. But then when I read the actual real thing that it's based on, I was like, oh, you know? In other words, Lacan is a meta-commentary on Freud. The real thing is Freud, you know? Lacan is, and the degree to which Lacan is not just a meta-commentary on Freud, that he's reaching for Heidegger and reaching for pre-Socratic philosophers to make sense of Freud, that's when it goes haywire. That's when it, it really goes off, jumps the shark. You know, and it's it's cool. Like, I'm not saying that Lacan is like completely worthless or something. What I'm saying is, though, like, if you really want to study what it's based on, study what it's based on. Heidegger. I, I, I know, do. Freud. I do. I do think that people need to read Freud and Heidegger. Well, all, basically, yeah. For, if you're into the philosophy and theory world, you got to do it all. You know, it's it's Pokemon. You got to catch them all. But the thing is, yeah. So, uh, gosh. Otherwise, Lacan doesn't mean very much. It just I, tells you. It's like a kind of superficial. It's like, like it's like a phenomenal descriptive something. Like it's compelling at the level of like, it's like reading a good novel. It's like oh. Yeah, I felt that, you know, but that's not theory. Theory is a critique. Right? In other words, Lacan can describe a certain kind of experience, but can he critique it? Can he can he see beyond it? So, or is you know? But also as a thinker, well, you know, he's more of a clinician. I think as Master Signified yeah. Bodies is pointing out in the chat, but there are a fundamental set of assumptions and phenomena that he is working through, and he's dealing in the aftermath of Heidegger's 
fundamental critique. He's also dealing. He's also dealing with the aftermath of Freud. In other words, and this is where the Frankfurt School is really important, because the Frankfurt School understands why not only Lacan but others go to the pre-Oedipal psychology, deal with you know these sorts of narcissistic things and you know the death drive and this kind of stuff. Jouissance. Like, in other words, there's a reason historically, socially, politically, why after Freud, everybody goes in that direction. Melanie Klein goes in that direction. Lacan goes in that direction. Kohut goes in that direction. You know, I teach I teach psychologists, too. Right. So I, I have a second teaching gig and I teach clinical social workers. I teach them epistemology of all things. Um, but I also teach them psychoanalytic social theory. And, you know, there's a reason why psychoanalytic therapy has to change after World War II. But the Frankfurt School deals with that. Marcuse deals with that. Adorno deals with that. They address it. They don't just say, you know, oh, this is where Freud was wrong, right? It's rather, this is what psychology is becoming in capitalism. Sure, sure. Right? And in other words, it's not like, you know... I mean, and there is a point to an intrinsic, like, critique of psychoanalysis. But then there are others, you know, there are, there are other post-Freudians besides Lacan, and they're dealing with the same stuff. No. It's not like Lacan is the be-all, end-all of that. But why do kids only know about Lacan? Because it's what's taught in school. It's Zizek, it's, let's be honest. Yeah, it might be Zizek. I don't want to blame Zizek for everything. No, you know, I mean, I, I, I want to give him credit. You want to say that that would be blaming but you know he's falling into like a kind of world that he's part of he's part of the whatever it is uh ljubljana school of psychoanalysis so he's part of the same world broadly speaking the same intellectual world that academia comes from i mean he is an academic in that way um and so there's an audience for him precisely because there's a whole generation raised on lacan who are, you know, ready to have Zizek say, and this is why this political phenomenon relates to this psychology, right? So, you know, Zizek didn't cause it. Now, you know, I'm here, look, I'm in my 50s, I'm older than you guys, and basically I'm here to tell you it's not like Zizek came down on a spaceship on the day that the Earth stood still. Right. (laughs) There's a whole history before this. Right. And so when I first read Zizek, I knew exactly where he was coming from. Whereas I feel like you guys whose first introduction to Marxism and leftism is Zizek. You think Zizek came from like Mars to pass judgment on the world. I will say for me and for me and Mikey, this is not the case. But, you know, go on. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, in other words. I'm I'm horrified by the idea that the first word of Marxism would have been by Zizek. For a lot of people, yeah, sure, yeah. You know, and because not because Zizek is so bad, but because Zizek just presupposes so much. Right. And it's sure. like you need to know the conversation you're entering into here. Otherwise, this the the humor, the meta commentary, the inflection doesn't make any sense. You know. He's yeah. entering into an argument that exists. 
Yeah. You know, and he's making he's making provocative, perverse statements that only make sense in that discussion. Sure, sure. Right. Now, I, 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 I would like to get more into this, but also I want you to be able to kind of finish out this. Uh, uh-huh. Your what you were doing was demystifying and cont- giving your own kind of little biography here, in terms of. And I, I'm not sure exactly if you were you uh, where you wanted to be in that, or it, do you want to kind of tie that together and get back into Adorno before we close out? Because um, yeah, maybe we should we should probably wrap up. But I was yes. going to say that um, Adorno was received by the New Left, and also later, I feel like in the English speaking world or outside the German speaking world. And then maybe back in the German-speaking world, in the New Left era, and then in the postmodernist era. And again, I was kind of close enough to that time in my own education to see how Adorno was being read as a Heideggerian rather than as a Marxist. And basically, people were trying to assimilate Adorno and Lacan and. Deleuze and Heidegger and whatever, right? And Frederick Jameson did a lot of damage in this regard because he seeks to reconcile Frankfurt School critical theory with French, you know, post-structuralism and post-modernism. And I'm just aware of the fact that that is itself a historical symptom. That's a symptom of the 80s. And it's it's a kind of liquidation of the Frankfurt School in favor of post-modernism. Even though Jameson was actually trying to do the opposite, what he what he was trying to do was like convince the postmodernists to become Marxists. And you could even say that maybe Zizek's trying to do that too, right? Maybe, but I also feel like Zizek really is a Lacanian in the beginning and at the end. Meaning, um, he said that he's more of a Hegelian than a Marxist in his debate with Peterson, actually. So right, yeah, right. Um, you know, a Hegelian, right, but a Lacanianized Hegelian, this kind of funny way of reading, reading Hegel. Um, I mean, again, I don't want to like rag on Zizek at all. Are you very familiar with the, the work of Todd McGowan or the book specifically Emancipation After Hegel? Um, yes, I know his work a little bit and that in particular would be, I think the only thing that I know by him actually. Um, and so, you know, again, I'm also familiar with how there's been a kind of return to Hegel after the sixties, Robert Pippin's part of that, you know, um, there's a kind of neo-Hegelianism. And well, it's this many, idea it is, of the teleological mm-hmm. Hegel, Hegel of synthesis, right? The teleological Hegel of synthesis is wrong. And, you know, he's a lot more this thinker of contradiction that we got to emphasize that. And, that to to not do so and just to write him off as an idealist is a mistake, right? Um, oh, certainly that's true. I mean, but the problem there is that it's kind of proceeding on false premises, meaning it's kind of starting off with a false problem, a pseudo problem, which is Hegel's not a teleology of the future. Uh, that would be Marx, I guess, because he's a socialist revolutionary. I guess people think that there's some Hegelian teleology to Marxism that's a teleology of the future. I don't think that that's really true of Marx either. But this, anti, this anti-teleological stuff is postmodernism, and we have to understand that it's anti-Marxist. 
Right. First and foremost, it was like anti-Stalinized Marxism. And it was like, you know, anti-master narrative, whatever. And, or grand narrative. Well, and if, you you have read to, the, and, if you read the, yeah. you know, the historical and dialectical materialism, the teleology of this work is like, I mean, it's like, it's just, I don't, I don't know how, I, not taking that seriously as postmodernism, I guess, I'm, you know. Well, what I'm saying is they see it as like the march towards the future. If there is a teleology in Marx, it's like the teleology in Hegel, which is to say it's a teleology of the present. It tells us how we've arrived at our present situation and how the present is tasked with freedom. It doesn't tell us what freedom is going to be in the future. It tells us what our struggle for freedom is today. That's the telos. It's to treat the present as the telos of the past. And the present is the telos of the past, not in an affirmative sense, but in a critical sense. And so, again, that's the rediscovery. Like, again, I think that it's driven people like McGowan and others to try to have an unteleological or anti-teleological Hegel, right? But Hegel's original point about, like, any kind of telos of history is that it's a telos of the present. It's not a telos of the future. It's not like something out there that we're moving towards. It's where we are now and how we got here. Right. And so where, where does the contradiction of the present come from? That's the telos. So, you know, I think that again, because of Stalinism and because of the failure of Marxism, there's this misplaced anxiety about Marxism and about, Marxist Hegelianism that I think is just a false way of posing the problem. Right? The, the problem is not, you know, that Hegel and Marx think that we know what the future is and that we have to subordinate ourselves to that future. It's rather, no, we have to discipline ourselves in the task of freedom now, today. And what does history tell us about how we got here now? Right. It's about history. In other words, history is about the past. History is not about the future. History is about the past, first of all. But and how we understand history is how we understand the future, right? So th this is... No, it's how we understand the present. We don't understand the future. The future doesn't exist. But the present doesn't make sense out of the how we are interpreting ourselves vis-a-vis -vis past and moving into future, right? Like... Yes, but the future is going to be what it's going to be. Meaning, uh, we don't know it. What we know is what the present looks like in its movement. Right? And so, you know, again, the dictatorship of the proletariat, if you look at Marx, it's defined negatively. Right? And even, even communism, for Christ's sake, is defined negatively. It's the absence of capitalism. It's the absence of capitalist compulsion. It's the overcoming of capitalism. It's, you know, it's not defined positively. It really isn't. Well, so I want to, I almost want to stick on this, on this McGowan thing because I, I just want to defend him to, to, to my last dying breath. But I think what I still, I, you're dropping all these hot takes here at the end and it's like, well, now I want to go for six hours, but we probably should start wrapping up at seven o'clock where you are yeah. now. So, yeah. um, 
what I guess a, a couple closing out questions then. Um, so, uh, if capital could be the ravings of a madman, then why is it capitalism to you? Like, what, what you know, what, you, you kind of have this. Well, and maybe it's all wrong. You know, okay then. Then why do you? Then why is it this for you? Um, why is it? Why is it capitalism? What makes you think well, it's capitalism think, is the main – in fact, yeah, what makes you think capitalism is the worst evil or the main thing that we should be focusing on today? Yeah, especially for a lot of people who haven't spent a lot of time in Marx, then you know, this is, I feel, like a, a natural question. Well, okay, so first of all, capitalism isn't like evil. Capitalism is a freedom problem. So capitalism is a form of unfreedom that also – has a form of freedom and has at least you know looked at this way has the possibility of its own self-overcoming through its contradiction and not through one side of the contradiction but through both sides of the contradiction right so it points beyond itself in its bourgeois social relations and it points beyond itself in its industrial forces of production right so the bourgeois social relations, the bourgeois desideratum of freedom um, points beyond industrial production and industrial production points beyond bourgeois society. Right. So that's where we are. We're like in that contradiction. Now, I think that in broad terms, that's still the world that we live in. I think that post-Marxism or attempts to do something else besides proletarian socialist revolution politically have not worked. And they've failed even worse than Marxism failed. Right? So, like, I don't know, Islamic fundamentalism or, you know, radical nationalism. Or the new left that tries to say that people in the Imperial Corps just need to get behind those things. Surely, right. Yeah. And, you know, I, th I think that we come back to this problem, um, you know, looked at politically. In other words, if, if we understand capitalism as a political situation, not just an economic situation, but as a political circumstance, if we look at the history of politics since 1848, I think that what we're going to find is that we're dealing with the same essential problems. Um, now, you know, there are other people who would say, like Hannah Arendt, who was mentioned earlier, she would say, you know what, we're dealing with the same essential problems that Aristotle found in the ancient polis. And I would say maybe, maybe we still deal with the same problems that I Aristotle that, identified. I thought the human condition is arguing the exact opposite of that, which is that this is, that the the public-private uh, distinction that is the basis of their entire yes. society is no longer here, and that socialization has actually erased the possibility of the public-private distinction. So therefore, all of, all, well, our, all of our ways, politics and all of its in, assumptions are no longer like valid. In, well, in some ways, that means that we're more in Aristotle's situation than we are in bourgeois society. In other ways, of course, it means that we're beyond the Aristotelian problem. Now, that's true. But the human condition is a funny kind of 
I mean, it's a great work. It might be her best work. Um, it, there's a funny kind of despair to it, too, right? A kind of a pessimism there. Um, but insofar as she's a political theorist, she would say that, you know, ancient political problems are still with us. You know, she's a critic of democracy, for example, um, while also accepting its modern necessity, which has to do with capitalism, right? So it puts her in a kind of a weird position anyway. It's, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, summarize her up in a kind of simplified way or kind of ball her up and throw her in the trash. I'm just saying you could say, of course, you could say that we're dealing with fundamental political questions in society that go back before the Industrial Revolution. You could say that. I was just using Hannah Arendt as an example. But I think that, you know, Marxism helps us specify the problems we're dealing with today. Um, I don't think, so looked at, like, leaving aside the question of capitalism, we could just say the problem of democracy. So why has democratic revolution failed since 1848? And that's why I brought up Arendt, because, you know, you could, whether it's her or someone else, you could say democracy has failed. But there's a specific failure of democracy after 1848 that I think is salient. You know, um, and is something that's really crystallized in the 1848 revolutions and really has not been overcome since then. Um, so I think that Marx is a thinker of that. And it kind of takes, that, on a new, it takes on a new meaning in the age of invading other countries and assassinating leaders and installing coup, you know, regimes as a way of democratizing other countries right like so that's and that's where dugan that's where dugan i just have to say it because i said his name now but that's where dugan comes in with saying that in the failures of communism and fascism liberalism taking on the mantle of you know world leader has meant that it takes on totalitarianism it, you know it's it's anti-totalitarianism yeah. has necessitated a liberal totalitarianization right and yeah that's the, a little problem. bit of a carl, that's a little bit of a carl schmidt style argument too and he is Schmidt. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a Schmidt argument, but I would say that again, it, you know, if we're looking at the social totality, if we're looking at the totality of modern history, and we understand that capitalism is a political problem and not only an economic problem, then what we're going to find is that a lot of issues that Marx identified in the 1800s are still with us. And the relationship between the economic issues and the political issues are also there. Okay. Right. So the crisis of the social relations of labor, intrinsically connected to the crisis of democracy in politics, and the crisis of liberalism in society, you know, civil liberties, civil society. Um, I think that these problems, I mean, in other words, why is Marx Marx? You know, let me put it to you that way, because I said earlier on, I said, I do think myself, I believe I, I am compelled to think, based on my understanding, that we still live in Adorno's time. We still live in Lenin's time and we still live in Marx's time. Right. So in what way do we still live in Marx's time? The relationship of the political and the economic and the social crisis of capitalism. 
Right. And it's it, it's it's the whole kit and caboodle. In other words, it's and also, you know, the problem is that it, within Marxism, there is this kind of like debate. Are you like an economic Marxist or are you a political Marxist? You know, do you prioritize economics or do you prioritize politics or or do you look at society and culture more broadly or this kind of thing? And I see that as a symptom. In other words, I see that disintegration of Marxism into these competing priorities as itself a symptom. So this is a society where there's a crisis in economics, there's a crisis in politics, there's a crisis in society and culture, and there's a crisis in that these things are opposed to each other, where the culture seems opposed to the economics, and the economics seems opposed to the politics, right? right. And I think that Marx still gives us a way of thinking about these things together, critically, right? Not like an economic determinism of politics or a political determinism of economics or some kind of economic determinism of culture or a cultural determinism of economics, but thinking of them in crisis together as self-contradictory and mutually contradictory. I think that Marxism offers a view on that that you cannot find anywhere else and god help us people have tried right they've really tried um to go beyond marxism to replace marxism to have a deeper critique than marxism i think they've ended up being superficial by comparison to marxism but again only if we know really what marxism is and you know unfortunately a lot of activists don't have much patience for theory, you know, and they just seize on to certain things and they want some authoritative account and they want it reduced, simplified to a direct issue that is easily identified and that you can just say, do this. And, you know, but again, for me, I feel like if you want to know why I think Marxism might still have a point or why we might still be thinking about Marxism, it's because in 2022, we can look back on the last hundred years of history and we can see how certain problems have stayed with us. And just when we thought we were leaving those problems behind, they come back. Right. Right. So post-industrial society, post-capitalism, post-democracy, right? Cybernetics, profound cultural changes, new social movements. It's turned out no, we haven't gotten beyond these problems from the 1800s. I mean, I wish that we could say that we have. You know, I wish that we could say that we, we are in some, like, fundamental new ontology and, you know, whatever. Francis Fukuyama, you know, like, post-human, you know, or Deleuze, you know. I mean, you know, it would be great to say we're dealing with something wholly new. You know, and Marx is just some old-fashioned Victorian thinker. I think that history has shown otherwise. I think we still live in Marx's time. I think we still live in Marx's head. Right? And so, you know, we either reckon with that, deal with it. Um, I think most of the people try to avoid it. And sometimes they avoid it by being Marxists. And just, right. saying, and just saying nothing's changed and we can just run with scripts? 
is what you're saying? Yeah, or they say it, you know, to they, they, they say they're Marxists in order to, like, stave off the deep problem. In other words, they turn it into just a very straightforward, simple explanation. You know, that it's just like, oh, it's class. Without ever saying what class is. Right. Right? Or the ways that like, that's been, or the way that that, as a category with a specific purpose or you know empirical origin perhaps can could have become defunct or needs to be elaborated on which is a thing that i want to ask you next time i think probably i want to uh -huh. but you sent me an article on class that i need to read now 